Father Brendan Kilcoyne coming to you with the conversation, courtesy of Immaculata Productions with uh, John Waters. John, I'm really grateful to you for taking the time out to be with us today. It's a real pleasure, Brendan. Nice to meet you and uh, I'm delighted to, to be able to talk to Great. you. Great. The reason we so much wanted to talk to you, John, is, is that, um, as I've said to you already, and at the risk of embarrassing you, I can think of very few, if any other at the moment, who can talk as well to the situation we're in here in Ireland as, as you can. I feel you've really, really thought about it, you've written about it, and if you don't mind me saying so, I'd say it has cost you. It has. You it's, it's, yeah. it's kind of like a strange thing that to be drawn into something yeah. that 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 isn't kind of fashionable or 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 even visible, and to feel compelled, even though you kind of wish somebody else would do it. Sure. Do you know what I mean? It's Absolutely. it's it's a lot of like like a lot a lot of things I find in life are like that. Yeah. That you end up doing things because yeah. you know, nobody else seems to do them, and and uh, you know the language of this is very difficult. Yeah. And people always get the wrong end of the yes, stick. Yes. They don't understand really, because we're we kind of have kind of tram lines of understanding. Yeah. That people kind of, you yeah. know, and they assume if you're saying they they listen to a little bit of what you're saying and they assume you're on that tram line. Yes. When yes. in fact you're going to go off at that junction there yeah. and head off in a totally different direction. Okay, interesting. But it's it's a complicated phenomenon culturally. A lot of th things in culture now are very very complex. And the purpose of media seems to be, in general, to simplify them or oversimplify yeah. them. And so, if you try to, con to to remind people of how complicated they are, you you end up in trouble. I, I suppose a, a question that's going to be in a lot of the minds of a lot of people listening to this: um, uh, you often have about somebody like yourself who's really met his mark is how you started. You know what what a man's beginnings are. What was what were his early influences? Do you, I, I know you've written about it, but do you mind talking to that for just a while? If you were putting it to me like that, I, what made me eccentric? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have to say that I had a very different uh, childhood than most people. I, I was born into a situation that was kind of not... It was in obviously in the middle of the 20th century, yeah. but it might have been in the middle of the 19th or even the 18th in some respects, because my parents, and particularly my father, uh, were quite eccentric. My, my, they were different. They were older than me, a good deal older than me. Obviously, they were older than me, but they were a good deal. My father was 50. As far as I can work out, I was conceived on my father's 50th birthday. Okay. Now, that's, that's the kind of a Columbo <laughs> process of investigation uh, yes, that I've never, yes. I've never been able to confirm. <laughs> Obviously, it's not the kind of a thing. Absolutely. <laughs> but, but that's yeah. kind of... Uh, 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 so, you know, I don't know whether I was, uh, you know, uh, an act of, of uh, uh, celebration or consolation. Okay. And we, we were in a very different kind of situation, you know. In, in, even in the middle of the 20th century, the house I was born into didn't have electricity, yes. didn't have running water. Yes. In the middle of a town, yes. there was a tap up the road we used to, on the street. Sure. Uh, it was a part of an old-fashioned pump that was attached, yes. and we yes. used to get our water there. My, my, my sisters don't like me talking about these things, but I, I take yeah. great pride in it, oh, actually. Sure. You know, and we didn't have television, and we didn't have radio. We got the newspapers, yes. We got the Irish Independent and the Sunday Press for some reason, uh, and the Evening Press. So there was a kind of a, a diversity, yeah, yep. you know, politically speaking. Uh, 
And my father uh, worked for very long hours. He got up at four, half four in the morning and, and went out and I was gone most of the day until about seven at night. He was driving, a, he was a mail car driver. But he was a very odd man in the sense that he was a highly intelligent man and with very little formal education. But he had the house, there was a big room full of yeah. books in the house, yeah. uh, which he'd acquired in, in auctions at, at old uh, houses yeah. that were be, being sold off. And uh, I used to plunder those as a child. And I was also, <clears throat> I was asthmatic, I think. They didn't call it, they called it bronchitis in those days. I'm not sure what the difference is, but uh, I had a very bad chest. So I spent an awful lot of my childhood at home yeah. in bed yeah. until I was about 10, reading these books or, or, or other books that my sister would bring home from the school library or something like that. And so I, it was very different, you know, and, and I think the only thing I can say about it is that I don't know if everybody was that like that. I probably wouldn't in any way be different. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I wouldn't stand out in any way. I do. I only stand out because the generality of the culture was already dominated by things like television, and and I, that was kind of unifying the mindsets of everybody. When you can see that now, it's, I think it's reached terrifying levels now, yeah. where everybody is watching the same thing at the same time yeah. and have the same thought at the same time. As a result, yeah. you know. And then the other aspect of that in the context specifically that we're talking here, and, and there is no specific context because the context is everything also, was uh, the church. One of the things that I, I was very hard about this was that our house was very primitive and embarrassing, you know? Like we didn't have electrical appliances like cookers and things like that. And, mm. and, and so we were all embarrassed to bring our friends home also as a result felt embarrassed to go to their houses because we couldn't reciprocate. Okay. So there was only one other house in the town that we could go to mm -hmm. freely and that was the church. And that became in a certain sense a kind of a second home okay. as a child, you know. Like, and it was an extraordinary, palatial place by comparison. But I don't interpret, it, interpret the way that that might be interpreted ideologically now because yeah. once you say that you're into another kind of sure, short yeah. circuit. Yeah. To me it was like that it was a sign of something beautiful yeah. that was yes. beyond yes. and that it belonged to me yeah. and that I could go in there without any yeah. letter hindrance. Yeah. And uh, we used to, I used to do that and all, even it, 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 we all did really, you know, yeah. even though we wouldn't necessarily talk about it in that yeah. way. And you would go in there and stay for like half an hour, just kneel down or sit down and, and just and it's quiet like and uh, and then I became an altar boy and that was the, the first time I felt carpet on my knees was when I was an altar boy and all of that wonder and mystery it was the Latin mass in that time and it was absolutely extraordinary oh you got the Latin mass I did yeah, yeah that's I did and, and, and yeah. uh, I, I remember like uh, it, it was absolutely magical you know the, the sensation that you felt in the whole thing you know from the very moment that you rang the bell before that there was something yeah. being released, yeah. and uh, I remember I, I I didn't understand the Latin, but I, I I had it all off by heart at the time, you know, because I remember the sound, just music, yeah. like it was, it mm. wasn't, it wasn't just speaking, it was yeah. music, yeah. and then when, the, when we were in the choir in the school and and we sang the high mass, uh, the requiem mass for funerals, which again was a very special kind of thing, and. Uh, so that, that it, it was all that, and, and, and right at the heart of that then was this relationship, which is, 
given to us, this relationship with Jesus. You know, that it was like, you know, and I'm not in any way trying to uh, trivialize or write that, but it was almost like, like, an, like an elder brother. That was the imaginative zone of the, the relationship. Yeah. And I, I've often said like, that in, if, as a child, like, he was in every room that I ever was in. Whoa. That was my sense. Yeah. He was always there, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and then that kind of started to, yeah. to go then when I became a teenager because the culture came in. And, I, and this is very hard to kind of communicate because people think you're making kind of judgments of a certain kind. Like that you're, as it were, yeah. being moralistic maybe. Or well, I entered my teens, what was it again? It would be the, the late 60s. And uh, that was a time of huge ferment in the world, you know, and culturally and mm. the rock and roll and uh, the Beatles and, and uh, Elvis and all that stuff was, had been happening. And it was, it was beginning to, to, to permeate the culture in the west of Ireland, like where I was in Castlereagh in County Roscommon and a small town of 2,000 people. But, you know, I had a very close friend uh, uh, called Jerry who, who was very much into it. And he had all, I mean, they, he was watching Top of the Pops and he'd be telling me, and he'd buy the new music in Express and mm. he'd, give me the, he'd give it to me then when he'd finished it and he had a guitar and, and you know, I was very staid, as you can imagine, like from the description I've given, I was very kind of square. <laughs> Suddenly, I mean, one day he, he, he appeared in, in the beginning of the summer holidays. I was sitting on the bridge in the middle of the town and I seen this apparition coming down the street towards me, you know, kind of an orange and, and, and yellow and all kinds of exotic colours and it was Jerry like, and I was there in this kind of plaid, I don't know what you'd call it, like jacket it was, or black, you, we used to have a black jumper and, or a grey jumper and, a, uh, and he arrived in this and it was like Jimi Hendrix had arrived, you know, down the street and I said, I realised that I was going to have to get, him pull, get my ideas together as if I was going to survive in the coming time because he was really putting it up to me, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and from there we, we kind of found ourselves in a new dispensation. Music, with music and, and expectation and all kinds of things. Which culminated in the, I think, a kind of a fantasy that we were, we were entering into, which was, I think, must have been new in culture in that part of the world. Where we suddenly thought that we could actually escape yeah. from everything and become something great in a certain yes. sense. Yes. And what happened then, you see, with those childhood things, the church and all that, was it seemed to me that, that there was therefore a choice was being presented to me. And that was because I think uh, the church had a very dim view at the time of anything like that. They were kind of regarded as frivolous at best and, and, and you know, sinful mm. uh, and all that. And, um, but they were very highly seductive, you know? Yeah, sure. I remember actually going to the, to the cinema, and I don't know what year it was, 69, I suppose. Um, the Beatles, Let It Be. And I, I, was, I was astonished by it, that if people remember the, the rooftop concert, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it just completely seduced me. And so, uh, the way I've often put it, uh, one day I realised that I had to choose. And the way I put it, and it sounds almost uh, uh, blasphemous, but I, used to, I had to choose between Jesus and Elvis. You have you, yeah. Okay. And I chose Elvis. And that was a very hard moment, in yeah. a way, because of that brotherly yes. love, if you like, in those terms, you know? Yeah. But it seemed to me that the way it had been presented to me yeah. was that I couldn't have both. Even though Elvis seemed to think you could. <laughs> 
He did think you can. I, but I, yeah. yeah, he did, you know. Yeah. And Dylan thinks you can have both. I think so, yeah. And we didn't know that, you see. No, 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 fair enough. That was the thing, you see. We, were, we didn't have all the information. Could I just ask here, because an old professor I had used to talk about this a lot. Mm. He, he reckoned he saw it as early as the early 50s. He was a history professor, a priest, he's dead now. Uh, Patrick Corish, he was an historian. But he felt the church in Ireland ran out of ideas that there was a huge failure of imagination. And mm. even as a young professor in Maynooth, he felt apprehension. Yes. Is that he knew the world, he could see the world becoming very complicated, yes. very interesting, very dangerous. D yes. But that there were the same sort of formulas for dealing with it. I think that it was imagined that it had to be avoided at all costs. Yes. And that the way, there was a way around it. Yeah. And it would pass. Yeah. And if we all had kept our heads down, we, would be, we wouldn't be touched by it. But of course, that, that wasn't possible, and, and it didn't happen. Uh, the kind of way I felt about it, I think, was that, uh, well, he wouldn't really like any of this stuff, you know? Mm. You know, it wouldn't be his thing. And I better not tell him I'm going, you know? I'm not, uh, I, I'll just slip away. And you know, I wait till, as it were, he's asleep one night, and I'll go, and, and I'll be gone then. Gotcha. And he'll, he'll come to terms with it in due course. Yeah. Type of thing. And, uh, and that's kind of what I did, you know. I, I, I uh, went off and, and I kind of cut. Mm -hmm. uh, not totally at first. I mean, I went through the motions, which is probably yeah. what the culture has been doing for some time. Yeah. But didn't really buy into it in the same way. Because I couldn't reconcile the two. Yeah. But there were other factors as well. I suppose you kind of, uh, uh, you know, you get develop resentments. You, there's a lot, like, you might have a resentment against one person, which fuels the whole thing, you know. And there was mm. a bit of that going on as well. Uh, a particular priest that I had a, a kind of a ding dong with, you know, and that fueled me in sure, a certain direction. Yeah. And uh, that kind of journey went on for, I, I would call the journey towards freedom, yeah. defined in a certain way went on for a certain time, maybe 20 years. Mm. What turned me back was that uh, I ran into trouble with drink. And I went to Alcoholics Anonymous, which is, uh, you know, a spiritual program. But it's not a Christian program or it's not a Catholic program. But it, what it did to me, what, what it did for me was that it alerted me to something I hadn't taken in at all in any of this, which is that which is obvious when you start to think about it, that our, my whole structure is derived from something. And I need to be aware of what that something is. Yeah. Because that something will define my destination, yeah. my origin, and my journey yeah. between. And I started, you know, that it started, it made me aware of the, of the whole structural thing. And made me think differently. Because at the, at the time, you see, you see, I think well, looking back on childhood, we just thought, the existence of God was obvious. It wasn't controversial. Like. No, no, no. Uh, no, it was. <laughs> like, and, you know, we just took it for granted. Mm. Like, and, and we, you know, in the same way as, you know, the days of the week or, you know, mm. the night and the day, mm. you know, that was yeah. the way it was. But then in this kind of period that I was away, I was never an atheist. I never had any, you know, doubt that there was something everything had to mm -hmm. come from somewhere, you know, to put it very simply and crudely. We come back to that, but, it, you know, it was never, I never got to that stage. But it was, as I, whatever an agnostic is, I mean, I, I said I was an agnostic, and I wrote a book once called Lapsed Agnostic then, 
to describe my journey back, which, as I say, started with AA. The whole God thing, you see, they, they said, they had this idea like that um, of the higher power. And their analysis is that alcoholism is a disease of the spirit and that you come to that because you have, you have actually done something very particular. You have, you have replaced God yes. in your life. You've kicked God off the throne yes. and you've taken his place. And that gives you all of the responsibility of God, yeah. but none of the power. Yeah, which, which is, is term- inconvenient. It's a terrible situation <laughs> to be in, you know. <laughs> and, and, you know, there was, a, there was a book written about AA early on in its existence by a German guy, um, and it was called Not God. And it's a very interesting title, because what it actually means is, it sounds like a bit atheistic or something, but it's actually not at all. It's, what it is is it's saying to you, the first thing you have to understand about God is that you're not him, you know. And it's surprising like how many people haven't learned that lesson and they don't know mm. that they haven't learned it and they don't know that it needs to be learned because mm. they don't know that that's what's happening. And that was, that was me, you know, because what it is is that if you're not in contact with, with, with this, whatever this entity is, let's say, for the moment, of, that God is, if you're not in contact, that means you're missing the most fundamental part of your structure. And so your whole entire relationship with reality yeah. is, is yeah. screwed up because you're now dealing with everything as though it were your responsibility. And that's terrifying because you don't have the power to deal with it at that level. Yeah. And you hadn't as a child. Yeah. You, know, that's, you come out of childhood, you, you, you're so used to actually things being looked after for you. Yeah. Most children are there. Some unlucky ones are not. But So I, I kind of... Uh, uh, began to realise that I'd missed the whole part of the... the I don't know, that, that something I, I didn't know about myself. I didn't know about my life. I didn't know about my structure. And uh, I started to piece all these things together again then in my head in that way. I wonder, and, uh, you know, I was still in the, that kind of frame of mind with, the, with uh, uh, Catholicism uh, that wasn't really very open, I suppose. But AA has this thing where it says to you, you will go back. We go. We find that we. They put things like this. We find that we go back to the, the, the our religion of origin. Yeah. And you know when you think about it, that makes sense because that's that's the hardware that you yeah. uh, that you've got yes. in there. Yes. And uh, I started to explore all of those kind of things that I would kind of glossed over before. It's very interesting. I mean, the whole thing about God, as I understand Him which is kind of a license to not believe in God, if you don't. I mean, they talk about the higher power, and they say, well, it can be the light bulb. Yeah, gotcha. Or it can be the group. I heard of a budgie, I think. Yes, in the sense that it's not you. That's yeah. the most important thing, it's not you. Yeah. That it's something external, something yeah. outside. But of course, it has to be... Sure. You know, that, you know the budgie doesn't work for very long. No, no, it didn't, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, so... So, th- so that all comes down to the, to, to the fact, not that it comes down to it, it's, it's, or comes up to the fact yeah. that we are, which is obvious, we are ju- we're creatures on a journey yeah. that started we do not know where or why yeah. or how, and we do not know where or how, how it will end. And that's, on those terms, is a terrifying state of being. Yeah. Unless you remember that you were started, you were in, you, for some reason, yeah. by some being, by some entity, yeah. and that it's okay. Yeah. That's okay, because that's all there is. Yes. 
And I, once I started to think about it like yes. that, then you see, I, I, I suppose I acquired um, what I would call a kind of an experiential uh, uh, understanding of reality based not on information uh, or, or education or anything, but just on ex the experience of my life turning round you know, from the alcoholism thing and other situations as well that, that came at me in, uh, in the immediate aftermath of that, which were highly troubling situations and which would have baffled me normally and would certainly have baffled me if I was drinking. I don't know, if I, I wouldn't have survived them. But by actually able to, by applying this method that I didn't have to be in charge of my life totally, that there were certain things, that's the method you see, you many, that's the day, the, the one day at a time. It's not that you cling on mm. for a day at a time, you know, just, dear Jesus, like, you know, yes. let me survive today. It's not that, really. It's that all you have to worry about is these 14, 16 hours that you're awake today. You know, and, and it's sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Yeah. And so you start the day by prayer, by asking for help. And, yeah. and, and, and they said to me, if you, the only prayer you know is one word, help. That'll do. Wow. And if you know only one word at the end of the day, and that word is thanks, that's okay. I had difficulty praying at that stage. I hadn't prayed for years. And I didn't really know what it was. I thought it, because you know, I remember when we were kids, you know, at, at, at various devotions and all that, you'd be saying the, the, the rosary and yes. be, you know like I, I would lose count you know and you, you your mind would go off sure and you would absolutely feel, you would feel guilty then yes all that and I wasn't sure I, I couldn't really grasp what it was and nobody ever really told me what it was so I, but I was doing this you know and uh, taking this advice because I was going through very difficult situations and and I would do that and in the morning I did know a few prayer the serenity prayer and uh, the our father and things like that but I didn't really feel that I was connecting. Mm. And uh, I was talking to this man in, in the fellowship one day, and he said, uh, well, how do, you, how do you pray? I started explaining. He said, well, no, no, but where, where are you, like? Are you, like, do you kneel down? I says, oh, no, no. It was a shocking idea to me. And this is very interesting. Yeah. It was shocking to me, and I, I didn't know why, but it was. I says, uh, he says, why not? I said, well, he says, I, I'm not able to kneel down. I says, he says, my knees won't bend. He says, why, is there something wrong? No, I said, well, I said, I bend otherwise, but no, I can't do that. He says, okay, he says, uh, here's what you do. He says, tomorrow morning, when you're putting on your shoes, take one of your shoes and throw it under the bed. I says, you'll have to go in down your knees to get it. I says, when you're down there, say your prayers. And there's something real in that, Brendan. Oh, absolutely. That's a brilliant story. Yeah. yeah. Do you see what he's doing now? Yes, yes. Because he, he recognises it's pride. Yeah. It's pride. And he knows that it physically makes my yeah. knees incapable of bending for that purpose. Yeah. So you get them to bend for another purpose, and then yes. you say, OK. And then when I did that, I realised this is actually... Uh, this might come out wrong, but it's... This is the most powerful position I could ever be in because I'm now in connection. I'm, I'm, I'm linked into the circuit of yeah. my existence in the correct way, mm. because I understand the relationship yeah. with the, my creator mm. 
And that's, that's, that's what it's about, I think. Yeah. What I realised after a while was that actually this method was actually, when I look back over yeah. a number of days, yeah. was being successful. Because it was, my life was now beginning to harmonise and the difficulties that I had were beginning to smooth out and I was, able to, I was able to cope with them on that basis. And I got through them all. Yeah. And that, I look back, and that's the evidence. I can't tell you why. Mm -hmm. I could actually short circuit the whole thing by saying, thanks be to God. But I, 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 I don't have to yeah. do that, I don't think. Because you see, there's a thing that I, I, I kind of wary of, you know, and that's kind of how, with, with religious things, that people kind of short circuit into the, they go to the end of the equation before yeah. they go through the whole thing. Like you can talk it into existence, but you can only live it into existence. You can't, you know, you can talk it, but it doesn't yeah. create it. It doesn't generate it. And, and in the granular nature of existence that you see it or feel it or experience it. And it constantly has to be renewed. Yeah. Constantly. I it think C.S. Lewis at one stage said to, you know, some Protestants don't approve of kneeling. And there was, he was a Belfast Protestant and there was that kind of discussion going yeah. on among people he knew. But his, his answer was to point out, we're, we're physical beings. If you're going to go about pretending you're an angel, we'll get nowhere. That's right. You know, we, we live in a body, so you pray with the body. That's right. Or it's not you. That's right. You know? In, in Catholic culture, this idea of adoration. Yes. It's something that I, I don't think we understand, really, at a, at a cultural level. Because it's not what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. It's not some big ego in the sky that needs to be, you know... Massaged. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's about us. Mm. It's about the demeanour that we need to adopt because of our nature within reality. We are, you know, human, and, and that requires us to be in a certain disposition because there's so little we know. Yeah. So we are virtually all ignorance. You know, humility is the correct disposition for such, yes. a, person, for such a being. And that's not an insult. Yeah. That's, that's just reality, the yes. way we are in this yeah. strange dimension that we're in. Yeah. And I had a big trouble with that. I had big trouble with that because of very yeah. childish kind of egocentric ideas yeah. of kind of, you know, authority. And because mm. you, you go, I'd been through that teenage phase and rebelling against authority figures and all that. Is there maybe an Irish thing there as well? There is a yeah. bit, yeah. There def definitely is. I think it's, yeah. it's maybe the English Irish thing, you know. Resentment. Yes, yes. It's thing, the yeah. idea of, of having a master yeah. or something, you know. Yeah. And uh, I don't think we've ever really got around that. I mean, I don't, and to me, to be, I don't really understand some parts of it, you know, the, the whole question of, of uh, how you distinguish this being that we call God from other beings and, and, and how we might imagine his personality that would actually make sense of it all. I, d I think we're lacking, I'm lacking in, in, in understanding like that still. But I have a sense that that's a lack of mine that one to be filled rather than me deciding that that's the definitive word on the matter, you know, and that that should decide me and I'll just walk away from the whole question because of some difficulty I have. People tell you there are all kinds of things, you know, that they're atheists or agnostics or, oh, I don't bother with that, you know. Really, they're kind of saying something else, you know. Yeah. They're, they're saying that uh, it doesn't fit my life now. It doesn't seem to, it doesn't make sense of my life. I don't know, this is a kind of a thought that's come to me uh, in recent times, you know, that it's obvious in a way, but that Christianity, Christianity has a particular dimension that actually makes it tricky in culture. Hmm. And that is the incarnation. Yeah. Because it had to happen and did happen in a specific, at a specific moment in time. Yeah. That one Jew. 
Yes. Yeah. So it froze all of the kind of iconography yeah. at one moment. Yeah. And that's a huge problem now because people become fixated on that and they think it archaic and, you know, it doesn't seem plausible in this yeah. moment. People have difficulty, and I have difficulty, imagining the second coming of Jesus. Sure. Like, what would he be like yeah. in the modern world? Yeah. Would he be like he was in, in the pictures, hardly? Uh, what would he say? Is it possible to imagine? I've never seen a piece of art that successfully conveyed, yeah. like a play or a book or a novel or anything like that, a poem, mm. which successfully conveyed the possibility of a conversation with Jesus yeah. in the modern world. And can you imagine like, the idea that, you know, what would it take if you were to, say, be in a place like this and just reading the paper or something? And there was a figure there, like maybe another seat reading the paper or on his phone or something. And you, maybe he asked you what time it was or whatever, and you got into a bit of a conversation. And then at the end of that conversation, let's say, skipping to the end, or at some stage in the conversation, you began to think, is this him? What would it take to trigger such a response in yeah. a person now to make them think this could be him? Yeah. We don't go into that. No. Uh, because we're kind of given this mythical, almost, mm. version of the Gospel Times that is beautiful and we, it's, we're immersed in mm -hmm. it, like it's in our bones. Mm -hmm. But there's a gap between that mm -hmm. and us, mm. in another sense, that we can't seem to yeah. bridge. And we forget that clearly from the Gospels, because they don't try to hide it. Some people didn't take to him. No. Long before they, the plot to get rid of him, like, I mean, we, he made enemies quickly. People who had seen the miracles walked away from him. There are yeah. a whole lot of dimensions to this, but we reduce them to two. Yes. And he can't open his mouth, but there's a heavenly choir in the background. Like, it's as if it's uh, Jesus of Nazareth all over again, you know? Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah no, he, he wasn't, I would say he was a fairly tough customer to be I dealing with. I would say so, yeah. You know, on a daily basis. You wouldn't, yeah. you, you, you know. <laughs> You'd feel the track of his sandal on you very, you very might quickly. Do. You might do, because, you know, he wasn't at all uh, uh, this kind of uh, lovey-dovey kind of guy that, that we sometimes like to, or think we like mm. to, to say. What Jordan Peterson would call low in agreeableness. <laughs> yes, he sure was, yeah. He sure was. Uh, yeah, he was. Uh, he was yeah. not a people pleaser. Yeah. So th this is something that I, I struggle with is in some ways. Like uh, Pope Benedict XVI, Ratzinger, uh, talks about that. And he surprised me when the first time I saw him talk like this. And th I'm saying this as a layman because I haven't, I'm not, I mean, I've read into bits and pieces of sure, theology. Yeah. We have gone on on this kind of what you might call anthropocentric view of the whole thing. Then I hear somebody like Ratzinger say, well, you know, it's not like that. That isn't an adequate way of seeing the situation. God is, is not, we cannot define God. And God is something that is beyond our imaginations. And that, you know, mm. these are, as it were, placebo ideas. I did, that's not his phrase now, but they're, they're ideas that we, we are able to relate to, but which are, as it were, not the thing. And it said, I mean, I think it was, was it Augustine who said that if you, if you describe God, then you're wrong. You know, the, all of that kind of thing. So that's a very hard thing to, because to, I think a lot of, in Ireland particularly, we've, we, literalism and substantialism have been very 
central to our understanding of this. And what we've actually let go of is the literalism. Yeah. And the, it's not of Christ yeah. in any meaningful sense. Yeah. Because we don't know. And it's a strange thing. You see, word, as someone who's dealt, who deals with words and has dealt with uh, words all his work and life, I'm very conscious of the limits of words. Because words are at the end of the day, I mean, yes, they're, they're all we have. They are all we have. But they're inadequate for this. And we tend to forget the Jewish distaste for the name of God for pronouncing it. Yes. Uh, in fact, a prohibition against pronouncing it, yeah. I, I, it's a, which is interesting. Yes, there was a beautiful phrase of Father Giussani, who was the founder of Communion Liberation. Uh, he died in 2005. He said, we use the least inadequate words. Yeah. Now that's, that's a real challenge, to yeah. find the least inadequate words. Yeah. To fail with a bit of dignity. <laughs> yes. And I think, you see, the thing about language is, I actually think, and this isn't an original thought, I mean, I know that it's been said otherwise and better by others, but it's that when we're having a conversation yeah. here, like, and I'm telling you things, I'm not really telling you things, I'm reminding you. Because you're here, what you're actually processing yeah. is the imaginative outcome of what I say for you in my life and in your own life. Yeah. And you're putting together the two at the same time and yeah. trying to reconcile them. Yeah. So yeah. I think John Lennon said this as well, you know, that most of the time he says we're, we're sitting there and, and, and we're lying looking at the sky and, you know, nobody, nobody feels a thing. It's the idea that, that uh, most of our minds are occupied by something other than words, mm -hmm. by space. Mm -hmm. And that in that space we can comprehend anything mm. or almost uh, provided that the words help us there. Yeah. So there's a kind of a process where we have to describe Yes. And then we jump. Yeah. There's a jump, there's a leap yeah. of understanding. And we say, yes, I know what you mean. Do you ever have that experience where somebody yeah. tells you, I know exactly what you're talking yes. about? You know. Suddenly it clicks. Yes. And, and you mightn't even have articulated it, but sure. you know, you feel it instantly. The, the words yeah. have triggered this. And, and this is something as well that, you know, in the beginning of the war, it was the word, the word was made flesh. That it's mm. so vital. The word, there's nothing else yeah. in a way, but it's not enough. Yeah. And uh, I think that's, that's one of the main areas that we've fallen down in. Another serious problem in our culture is that uh, and you, we've built a world within the world that God built. And we think that's the world. Yeah. Uh, again, Benedict talked about this in, in he did an amazing mm -hmm. speech in, in the Bundestag in 2011. Which I call it his bunker speech. And I, I've written a book, which I, it's never been published, but it, it's about it really. Trying, and it's not really finished, it never really found the final couple of chapters, but it's about that, that man built this bunker to live in, to close out the mystery. Mm. And that gave him a total comprehension and dominion over reality, because he built it. Yeah. So he knows everything about it. Yes. And he thinks it's reality. Yeah. And we all do, and we all live in it. Yeah. And, but the mystery is out there. But the mystery is also in here. That's yes. the real kicker. Like, yeah. That, that, that we can't escape that at all, even within the bunker. Yeah. The mystery is still here, simmering away. And I think that's probably the central problem with faith, spirituality, all these questions. 
Would you see that work as a metaphor for the church in the sense that the church, it's not an original metaphor, but the church saw itself to an extent as looking down from its battlements onto this surging chaos mm. below as the modern world started to lap at the edges of Ireland. Yes. And yet, is it Edgar Allan Poe who is that, he has that short story, The Mask of the Red Death. The plague is already inside. Yes, that's right. They're watching the enemy approach, but the, en the enemy has taken over the castle behind them. That's right, well... And they don't have the words to drive him out. They don't have his weapons. They can't fight him with his, his weapons. The, the human edifice is very um, corruptible. And I don't necessarily mean this in the orthodox ways, but, uh, you know, you can so easily misunderstand that the whole journey, the whole thing. Yeah. And as soon as you do, you're gone out of a harmony that is yes. absolutely essential. And you, you will not know it. In this bunker, you won't know it. Because it, you can appear to be in harmony. Yeah. You're out of harmony with the great outdoors, in mm -hmm. the sense, the mystery. But you're also out of harmony with yourself. Yeah. And once you do, then you've lost that. It's like, literally, well, metaphorically, it's like an instrument going out of key. Yeah. You're going out of tune. You, you can't play anything. Yeah. Um, and I think the church, the, the, the image there, yeah, it's... it's See, I, I think that the, the, certainly it wouldn't be a unique idea, like, but, and I wouldn't necessarily be the most uh, virulent uh, advocate of it, like, but that the church became too obsessed with trying to control people and control their, their instincts and, and uh, urges and all the rest of it and contain them for their own protection. Literally, I do believe that, actually, because that's the point. Of it, that it, I, I realise this as part of my, as it were, re-education, that all the things that I kind of had hmm. railed against or, or were, were not ordinances of man or, yeah. or, 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 of, or of a being called God written out on tablets of stone even, but that they were written in here. Yeah. And that by breaking these rules, as it were, I was tearing myself apart mm -hmm. and I was creating chaos in my own existence. Yeah. The key to it really is the word freedom. And I used it before, that, that you're talking about the, it's, it's a misunderstanding of freedom, yeah. fundamentally, at the very heart of it, that there are two kinds of freedom, let's say. There probably are others, other varieties, but there's these two very clear-cut, diametrically opposing yeah. ideas of freedom. And one is the idea of what all, that, all of that stuff that came in in post-60s mm -hmm. into Ireland and into everywhere, that it was basically if you want to be happy, you have to do what you want, do what you feel, mm -hmm. be yourself, be all, all these kind of things that, and they're all over our culture now. Whereas the journey that I went on was about that, that freedom, what I discovered was that I had misunderstood freedom. And the alcohol thing showed me that. I was never as free. Mm. Oh, when I started drinking first times, I thought that was freedom. For a long time, I thought that was freedom because I was a very inha inhibited kind of a youth, uh, very shy, very withdrawn, and didn't really mix. And, and But then suddenly, with two or three pints inside of me, okay, yeah. I was, phew, I was like, and I, I've often said like that, it was like, it was literally like that uh, when my mother brought me back from the hospital, she brought the wrong bottle, you know? <laughs> That if she'd brought this other stuff, yes. I would have been a complete unit. Yes. You know, it was like yes. the kind of degree sort of oil yes. or the, 
yeah, fuel, the lubricant of my yeah. whole being. Because yes. once I had it, yeah. I was confident. Totally the person I would yes. wanted to be. Yes. Sort of. Sort of. But you see, the trouble is, you see, that there's a tipping point. Yeah. And somewhere between the, the second and the third point, point, you kind of go into something else. And then you get worse and you go. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the key to this kind of misunderstanding of freedom. We think that if we follow our instincts, because they make us a little bit happy in the beginning, a little bit more will make us a little bit more happy. But it's not like that. There is that tipping point and it goes into chaos yeah. very quickly. A little bit is nice. Moderation yeah. in all things, including yeah. moderation. But then, if we, if we... And that's the key to this freedom thing. Because the alternative version of freedom is, is something like, and this is a very approximate definition, is that it's your path. It's the path that is set out for you in the whole of time, that we say, to follow. Yeah. It's ahead of you. It's, it's, it, and you don't know where it leads. Yeah. But you can see it's there. Yeah. And you can see the, the immediate, the first hundred yards of it yeah. or something. And that path is your life and your destination and your destiny. Yeah. And freedom is the ability to stay on that path and do what comes in front of you and, and be yourself within that. Yeah. And the other freedom is, is seducing you into the, the, the jungle. Yes. I think it's probably the central most uh, uh, significant cultural misunderstanding that we have yeah. that generates all of the chaos in our life and in society's life. Because there is these two, the, the path, the journey, being the true freedom, the natural instincts that we think. They need to be curtailed because that's the, that's the rule of life, that, that a little of something makes you feel good, a little more makes you feel terrible. There's, there's this strange paradox, this strange imbalance in the person. It is illogical and unreasonable and all those things, but it is absolutely true. And it's at the heart of everything. Because you see, when you, when you actually look at the culture generally now, what you realise is that that generation of the 60s, who had this idea of freedom, well, why shouldn't we be able to do what we want? And that's true, you know. Well, so long as we understand that the consequences will be what they will be, that's, yeah, that's the point. Because they, it won't work. And the point is it hasn't worked, Brendan. This is the thing, yeah. that the culture is a disaster as a result of it, but they won't admit it. Yeah. I don't know if they even know that that's why it is. I think they've actually convinced themselves that the only reason, for example, that we're not free still is that we're doing it wrong or we're paying too much heed to those old bearded hmm. naysayers, yeah. uh, patriarchs or whatever it is. Yeah. And if we could shake them off yeah. and shake off all the shame yeah. and all the, uh, all the other inhibitions, yeah. we would then be free. But of course, no, we'd be more chaotic. Hmm things will be worse and worse. They will just get worse and worse and worse. Mm. That's inevitable. That, so I think, now the problem is, how do you then talk about the first kind of freedom without seeming like you're a terrible kind of uh, naysayer? And, and, uh, yeah. That's the, the real challenge, you know? Uh, and you mentioned Jordan Pearson. I mean, he does that very well. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he's very, very clear about that. To, to me, that's what I hear every time when I hear him. He's talking about responsibility, mm. which is a bit of a cliche, because people, it's a dark word, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's a necessary word, but in this context, you, you kind of have to... I think it's very important to tell people like that, we're talking here about your nature. Yeah. We're not talking about a set of moralisms. 
There you go. Yeah. You know, it's your nature. Yeah. It's your structure. Yeah. You can't avoid it. Yeah. Without cost, it's consequences. Yeah. And 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 that's 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 what I learned really in the heart of that whole thing. You know, that with alcohol, and that spoke to me then of the whole gamut of of the freedom mm -hmm. experience that we were yeah. undergoing. What I learned there applies to everything. The anticipation of all this freedom mm -hmm. is wonderful. Yeah. But the experience is terrible. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have freedom. See, this is the thing. And that's what Jasani talks about this. And, and he talks about it in precisely in the context of Christ, you know? That in a sense, that, that freedom, that Christ really is the, is the, mm. the freedom journey. Mm. That's, that's how you see it. That's how we, in a sense, that's how, if you see Christ like that, then you see Christ in a very, very useful way and you see him in a very real way because he's telling us how to live this life as it actually is. Yes. And that it's not that I'm telling you this because you better, you know, you whether you're a bad guy and you want to straighten out. You know, that's not the deal, really. It's, it's you, you'll, you'll suffer if you don't do this, mm. like this. And everybody else will suffer and the world will suffer. Yeah. But if... But forget the suffering. If you do it like this, everything will be okay. That history professor I mentioned earlier, Paddy Corsh, he uh, had a knife in 90, uh, sentimental 19th century Irish nationalist ballads. I often think of this one. You know the West's Awake, that old one? Mm. You know that line, in that chainless wave and lovely land, freedom and nationhood demand. Be sure the great God never planned for slumbering slaves a home so grand. Wow. Yeah. Are we in danger of slumber? Oh yeah, we are. We're in deep, deep danger. I keep thinking of those few lines. They keep coming into my head the last well, few years. Well, you see, this, this slavery is the point. You see, because yeah. once you go, once you allow your passions or your instincts to rule you, then you you have become a slave, mm -hmm. because they will enslave you. Like that's what alcoholism is. It is slavery yeah. to the bottle. That's it, really. Yeah. I, in a way, if you want to say what happened to me, I became a slave to alcohol. Yeah. And, and, and you can become a slave to any number of things. Yes. And that's actually it. And the problem is, you see, when a society becomes enslaved in all these ways, in a multiplicity maybe of ways, it will actually give up freedom, mm -hmm. uh, real freedom, mm -hmm. thinking that freedom is to continue on yeah. this path to destruction. Uh, and I think that's kind of where we are. I think we're getting a carefully bottled form of freedom with different proofs allowed by the government. But we may have to go back to Broome Putchy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think so. <laughs> Up in the mountains. Well, you see, one of the big problems with all of this, Brendan, is that, that there are no conversations anymore uh, in, in a society. I mean, I, I keep saying this, like, and the, the, the concepts like society and democracy, they're, they're almost like the wrong kind of words to be using. Human existence, human interaction, yeah. human community needs conversations yes. so that it understands yes. fully the, the, breadth, yeah. the full breadth of, of, of possibility. Yeah. And we've lost all that because it's amazing, you know, if I, I, I live in, in, in South Dublin and Dunleary area now and, and uh, I go off and walk on the pier and it's a very interesting thing, you know, to walk up and down and just, you know, I'm, I'm mm. deaf in one ear now uh, the last few years. but. I can still hear it fairly well, and for some reason, I think the other ears got better. You know? sure. and, and but I, so I can hear. I hear these snatches of conversation, mm. like, and it's extraordinary what you kind of gather from people like that. It is true, you know, that people they all think the same things. They all think about the same things. Very narrow, the same names, mm. 
I like they talk about sort of Elon Musk as if he was like their next door neighbor. Yes, yes, yes. You know that kind of thing, you know. Yeah. A woman, I was talking to a woman in a, in, a, in a charity shop yesterday and she sells books, a lot of books, you know, and she's very picky at the ones she accepts, you know, and, and, but she's another woman in the shop uh, uh, who doesn't, isn't picky, you know, and she says she's constantly having to cull books. She says, but she says it's amazing, she says, the numbers of books of certain authors she gets in. Lee Child, she mentioned, like, I mean, not, nothing against him, but she says, so many people read the same books and think the same thoughts. And that's a, t that's a new thing in civilization, in the world. Mm. It's a new thing because before, even in our own culture, like, uh, everybody had their own headspace yeah. and was able to share it. You know, I mean, you know, I, the, the point about going back into like, things like talking about the way the culture used to be is not nostalgia. Mm. It's actually, well, let's, let's look at what they did and try to modernize it, mm. try to apply it in some way. And I think that actually, people talk about the Ramblin' House. Now, when I was a child, uh, we used to go, we spend the summers in my grandmother's house out in Cluny Quinn, beside her, because my grandfather used to work for the, the French family, Percy French's family, as a farm manager. Okay. And they, they had the, in a sense, the, the house at the gates of the estate, you know. It was kind of what you, we never called it a Ramblin' House, but I've heard the phrase since, and, and that's what it was, you know. Because every week, all the neighbours would come from miles around. Good Lord. Yeah. Uh, dead of night, like, mm -hmm. in the middle of winter, like even, in, in yeah. dark, in darkness, with flash lamps, maybe, the ones that were the rich ones, you know? Yeah. And uh, they walk across the fields or across the borings and, and uh, they would sit there drinking tea. No drink, like, just tea, uh, for like three, four hours and just talk and talk and talk. Good God. About everything. That's an entirely different culture because they, they were bringing with them their whole... Yes. Not just what things happen, but their imaginative response to them. Yes. Now people are sitting, if you go out and around any area in the, in the country, you'll see the same glare out yeah. of every window. Yes. They're watching the same people. Yeah. And there's nothing much going on. You know, all of this stuff that we're trying to get at is buried now and cannot be excavated unless we make a decision to, that is missing, that we need to have this conversation. We need to reimagine our total reality. Yes. Because otherwise we will be deeper and deeper into the bunker. Yeah. Which is the world that is we made and we understand everything about it. Yeah. And we think therefore that we are all knowing. Didn't Orwell in 1984 envision, a, was it a machine invented by the government called a versificator or something, that it just churned out corny, meaningless songs and tunes and, 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 yeah. and everyone would be singing them. That's thinking right, that did, they yeah. were very very much with things, you well, know. <laughs> well, you know, we're actually on the absolute cusp of that now because apparently artificial intelligence hmm. will actually be able to, within five to ten years, will be able to produce an entire, like, newspaper without human intervention. Yeah. That's, this That's is, an interesting... Isn't it? Like, I mean, because they've, they've... You see, this is, this is, again, to kind of digress slightly, but, I mean, this is a very critical moment in history in this sense because... It's a moment that is kind of, it only happens, this is kind of on the cusp of the artificial intelligence revolution. It's very analogous to the kind of machine revolution that happened 100 years ago. Uh, the, the, the production line and all that, you know, the factory. And, and uh, Frederick Taylor was the guy who invented all these methodologies and, and procedures. Uh, and they were first put out on the, the Ford Motor Company. And the, and the Ford went from, 
1908, every car was built by hand. Within five years, they were all on a production line, and they were all the same, and they were all, well, they could be made different, like, but they were all essentially the same, and there, were, there was no hand craft involved. It was all in the machines. It was all, it had been plundered from the craftsmen yes. and vested in the machines. Yes. And the same is about to happen to the human race now, mm -hmm. in the final, I think, stage of that where their, their minds will be plundered for whatever creativity is left. That will be vested in the machines and the human race will be more or less wow. left to vegetate in yeah. uh, hive cities or smart cities. And the one thing we know about smart cities is they will be smarter than their inhabitants. <laughs> so yes. so that's, this, is a, another, a very, like it's a, this is a moment, therefore, it could be a last chance. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean that really advisedly. I mean, I think that the human race the crisis that we're facing, you know, you could call it a spiritual crisis. Mm -hmm. That is what it is, but it's also, and perhaps more accurately described as a human crisis. Yeah. Because people misunderstand the idea of a spiritual crisis. They think, well, that means that people are going away from religion. Oh, no, sure. No, no, That's I not the you. problem. Yeah, no, 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 no. The, the problem is that religion is going away from yes. humans. Yes. They don't, because they're losing the very essence, the very mm. most essential understandings of their own structure and being. Mm. They're lost entirely in culture almost now. Do you care for the Coen brothers for their work? I do, yeah, I do, yeah. That recent one, the ballad of Buster Scruggs, the old trapper telling stories, you know, he said, people are like ferrets, all the same. Yes. <laughs> he keeps repeating this line. Yes. But it's actually, you feel, because their films are very intelligent. Yes, You yes. feel a point is being made, you know, yes. that, that, that's actually... Well, I, I think that we, we as people now, you see, this is a terrible trap, like, that... People now verify everything, not by evidence, but by how many other people think it. Mm -hmm. You know, like, that's kind of been, that's their, their test. Like, I mean, if you, we still maybe think at some level that uh, people take their information by reading the newspaper or listening to the news bulletin, saying, oh, okay, I heard it, yeah, noting all the information, parsing it, you know, classifying it, and then making up their own mind. But they don't, really. They, they hear something and then they hear it again, and then they hear it again, mm -hmm. and then it becomes the truth. Yeah. So you can manipulate that very easily by just repeating things. Because we so want to belong. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. right. I, I think that's something that we, you know, I, I discovered rather late in life, you know, that probably the desire to belong is probably a greater craving than, than hunger or mm. thirst. There's nothing worse in some ways, unless you can train yourself out of it. For most people, there's nothing worse than being cast out of the tribe. Yeah. And they just can't bear the thought of it. It is. It's not a small matter. No, it's not at all. And it's something we don't think about. It's not something we've paid any notice to at no. all, uh, how significant it is for all of us. And we're great at fighting talk about that. I don't give a damn what anyone thinks of me. Yeah. This, that. You need to say that with some respect. That's the price for that is high, like if if oh. if nobody agrees with you. Oh boy, yeah, uh, that's right. I mean, it's a very easy thing to say, and in fact, I'd be very suspicious of a person who said a lot. I, of, I it completely a lot. agree, because <laughs> it means that they really do care. Yes, if you really don't care what people think of you, then you need to care enough not to say it, mm. that it becomes obvious. The Australian writer Patrick Whitey is this tragic uh, depiction of a of a couple. Uh, they're Jews who in Vienna turn Catholic, mm. again to belong. They yeah. emigrate to Australia and discover that everyone's Protestant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Having gone to all the trouble, they've sold out everything. Yes. Uh, I'm not saying that you shouldn't 
become Catholic if you believe in Catholicism, but they had done it just to belong and then discovered that, in fact, they've miscalculated. That's right. It's very interesting. I, I, yeah. There was, there was a, a family in our street when I was a child and an elderly lady. She, I used to do her messages for her. She was very elderly, you know, and she had two sons. One of them was called Paddy and one of them was called Victor. And Paddy had children and he used to come home with his kids, you know. They lived right across the street from us for a long time before we moved. And we used to do some having pillow fights. I mean, they come in the summer, you know, they're English, you know, and we're fascinated by them. But the Victor, Victor went to Belfast and became a Protestant. And it was very convenient. Victor is a great Protestant name, you see, where Paddy wouldn't really work. No. You know? But it was an amazing sort of, it's almost like a novel happening yeah. in your presence, you know, because yeah. Victor very rarely came home, but Paddy came home all the time. It's really amazing, you know, that, yeah. that to be isolated is a very, you know, it can kill you, you know. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, the human need, the human yeah. being needs yeah. to be uh, in touch and, and literally in touch uh, with people and to, 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 to be cast out. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, many people find it unbearable. Apparently, the communist authorities in Russia, they, you know, we would think that when they threw somebody out, it wasn't that great for them, they got out. But they knew what they were doing. Yes because uh, many Russians wilt uh, outside of, of their homeland, outside of Solzhenitsyn, suffered terribly, apparently, in his exile. He did, yeah, he yeah. did. And he became very crotchety. He did. Yeah. It's come into my mind, it's a story from my childhood, and it's one of those stories which I don't tell often of these kind of things, but it's a kind of a slightly dark hmm. side of uh, the church, in a certain sense. And it was a brother we had who was quite a brilliant teacher. And he, he was the one who started me writing, you know? Because I remember, I'll never forget the day, I'll just tell the story first to his credit, because so normally he would just collect the essays, you know? And, and, read, and then mark them up and then give them back to us in a week or so. And he says, no, he says, today I want to do something different. He says, today I want you all to pick out your best sentence and I'm going to give you five minutes to perfect the sentence and then you can read out the result. And I, I just started doodling with this sentence. And I read out the sentence. And I can't remember, all I remember, the, it had the phrase in it, the naked, to the naked eye. I, that's all I can remember. It was about a bird, and it was the naked eye. And he praised me to the sky. He praised this, not me, he praised the sentence to the sky. Like, I thought, oh my God. And from then on, he kept saying, well, let me see what Waters has to say on this. Okay. And that's what started me interested in the idea that I could write. Yes. The downside of him was he, he had a bizarre system of, of punishments and, and he had a team, every row would be a team, you see. And the captain would be in the front seat and then there would be five or six going back. And you would vie with every other team, but you know, when you got your mental arithmetic wrong, you would get minuses or if you got a good essay and got a plus two or whatever, all that. Mm. You would start the week at 100 points and at the end of the week you would the, the, you know, get off homework if you weren't, uh, if you won the winning team, and then you get so many slaps apiece then for every point you were below 100, that's another story. But the interesting thing about this was, he actually said, before he introduced this system, he said, if you don't want to go through this system, he says, you have to bring a note in from your parents. You know, you won't be included, but I won't teach you either. Mm -hmm. And the amazing thing was that actually the people who the lads who brought in the notes, I didn't. 
because I would be afraid to ask me, you know. Fair enough. But they were all from the, what you might call the lowest socioeconomic levels. We were fairly low, near the low, but this was like the kind of the low. And they all just sat over there at the side, out of the whole thing. And, and you know, even we, we regarded them as kind of an inferior species in our class, you know. It was very bad education in lots of ways, but also very good in another, in the sense that it showed us that there's something in the world that we take for granted, you know, that, that uh, this sense of fellow feeling is not to be taken for granted. Like, people often don't really understand, you know, if, when you're getting into arguments with people about Christianity or with atheists, they always go for the same thing, which is that, well, I don't need um, any church to tell, I'm a moral person. You know, I remember actually once doing a debate with Christopher Hitchens, uh, in Dublin uh, years ago, when, he, when his book came out, God is Not Great. It, we had an interesting kind of uh, ding-dong, and, and at a certain point he said to me, he says, uh, uh, he says I don't know what, what religion you belong to. He says, it's not like anyone I've ever come across. And, and uh, I says, oh, that's because you, I says, you've spent the last three years in your, in your bunker uh, uh, fantasizing about all these uh, uh, psychopaths and, 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 and Fanatics, I says, and now you're out, you can't find any. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but he says, he said, well, and he came out with it. He says uh, that he didn't need any religion to be a moral person. And I says, well, the problem with that, Christopher, is that you lived all your life as I have in a Christian civilization. There you are. Yeah. And I says, so in order to test that thesis, what we need to do now, I says, is we need to adjourn this meeting for two thousand years. Mm. And we come back then, and we'll see how your we'll try your model, and we'll see how it went in two thousand years. Yeah. And that's the thing, you see. But mor morality is only a, such a tiny part what we call morality, and it can become, as we've been saying, it can become simplistic and, and mm. superficial, and, and rule based. Yeah. But as I say, it's written in the heart of man. Yes. These rules, uh, but there are so many other dimensions that we forget about. Yeah. It's not just morality. You don't just need Christianity yeah. to maintain order. Yeah. You need it for, to generate hope yeah. in a society, which is no small thing. Yeah. There is a Christian empathy, which we shouldn't take for granted. And I think that's a very simple... I was telling you a story before we started, and I'll tell it again, because it's, it's, it, to me it was a very telling moment. I was in Prague in 1990 uh, covering the first free elections for the Irish Times, and... Uh, I, I mean, I'd been aware of Havel, Václav Havel, for a good few years, and I'd been reading his essays, and was fascinated by the way he used to talk about the, the, the comparisons between the West and the East. Because he didn't take the view that, you know, capitalism, the West, was a, was a kind of a salvation mm -hmm. for the communist refugee, you know? Mm -hmm. he, he, saw, he said that uh, Soviet communism was a convex mirror image of the West. In other words, it just exaggerated somewhat the same tendencies in the West, mm -hmm. which I think is, you know, evident. That's interesting. Very evident, right, at the moment. But he used to talk about the effects of communism, the granular effects of communism on the psyche of the, of the Eastern uh, Bloc people. And, and, uh, but I, they were kind of abstractions to my mind. I couldn't really grasp what he meant. He just thought they were kind of atomization and, you know, uh, this sense of alienation that people... And the, mm. 
But I, 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 one day I, I got a sort of an insight. I was going into, the, I had to send a fax back to Dublin or a message back to Dublin or a telegram or something. I can't remember what the format was in those days there. But so I had to go to the post office in Prague, and uh, there was a giant, uh, 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 what do you call those uh, doorways? Revolving door. Revolving door. And you see them all over yeah. the place. You, you don't think about them much when you're. No. Um, so I was coming into it, and I suppose whatever process. It's only afterwards again you kind of construct this in your mind as something like that was going on. Okay, so you're approaching the door from the outside. There's a man coming at it from the other side, inside. So you do what you would have done in Dublin, which is you see him, you make eye contact, you believe, and so you move towards the door so that there's a harmony. He comes in his side, you come in your side, and you go through it. You both get through. Yeah. So I did that. And he nearly cut me in two. Like he just, boom. I, got, I was thrown out of the door, or arm caught in, or something like that. And and I thought, ah, that's that's what Hal was talking about. Yeah. He didn't see me. He doesn't see. We, they don't see each other. That's the absence of that empathy from a culture cannot be quantified or mm. estimated or anticipated. And that's kind of one of the consequences of what we're doing now to our civilization, and our, particularly in Ireland, I think, to a culture that was very rich in that way, which was all about, and whatever you might critique it on the basis that some, that has some degrees of insincerity sometimes, but overall, it embraced people. Mm -hmm. You know, it, 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 it enabled people to embrace each other figuratively, to care mm -hmm. if you have a problem. Like the way that people would walk up to you, you would see you looking around in the street and say, are you all right there? Do you, can I help you? Yeah. Or just the way that people would, would, would speak to each other and, and change the whole dynamic of their day. People negotiated each other. They did, yeah. That's yeah. right, negotiating. That, that's yeah. exactly the thing about the doorway that, that revolved. That's the word yeah. in that door. That there was no negotiation between that man and me. He wasn't interested. He just wanted to go out at the door, and I better stand out of his way, or he, I was going to. Yeah. yeah, he was going to bull through, and that was that. Yeah, and that's a kind of perfect metaphor for the devil take thine most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, these little subtleties, sometimes you can see a lot in them. Uh, Matthew Crawford actually talks about that. He's a philosopher from. Uh, he lives in California now, San Jose, I think, and uh, he's a motorcycle mechanic and, and uh, philosopher. He's written a number of books about the working with your hands, the connection between the senses but particularly the hands and thinking. And I think that's such a true thing, that, that those generations which came before me, that I remember my father and my mother and my grandmother, they had no education in that sense, but they were very brilliant people in lots of ways, you know, very intelligent, yeah. very smart, very, very, you know, wise people. And we're losing all that capacity because thought has become so abstract and received and isn't that kind of vested in the experience and just engaging with reality. So can you think about it like, you know, uh, if you watch a child, uh, I have a little step-grandson now, Mark, and he, he's, he's, he's still true, he's in three in, in, in a couple of months. And uh, like he's playing on the, on the mat there, you know, and every single thing he takes up, he, he looks at it and he yeah. feels it and he might put it in his mouth. Yes. And, and, and you know, he, He's looking then if he's loading up some bricks in from to Munter. He's watching, he's, and you can see him like he's trying to make space for them all. And he's trying to make, the, and, but he's using the hands. And if you think about it, that that's the way 
that's not just an activity that keeps him busy there for the first few years of his life. He's building his whole understanding of the world like that, which is how we do that. We all do that. We have done that from the beginning. Until at a certain point it becomes abstract because we go into an education system that stops, that cuts that off and gives us other people's ideas of things, which mm. is fine, so long as we continue to explore the world in that way as well and, and reconcile everything we learn to what we're experiencing in our own mm. reality. Trying to reconcile means, I suppose, both to find agreement, concurrence, but also disagreement and dissonance. And that's such an necessary process all the time. The problem is if you just take the whole thing, yeah. you learn it off by rote. Yeah. I had a friend, he, he, he taught, for, uh, he used to teach people how to speed read. And he was a very shrewd character, because he used to teach politicians and all, and all kinds of people, you know. And he's always said to me, you know, I'd say, oh, your man's, just, that's, your man's a very smart guy. He says, do you think? I said, yeah. I said, oh, yeah. I said, I know him, yeah. He says, uh, he's not as smart as you think. He says, but he has a very good memory. Yeah. You see, there's a big difference. Yeah. The retention and intelligence yeah. are two different things. We've lost yeah. that understanding. So it, a lot of this is, you know, goes to the whole problem that we have in our culture of, of dissecting uh, what's important for ourselves and for the life of our people and our yeah. Families and our, you know, the future, the posterity, mm -hmm. because we're leaving them a terrible crock mm -hmm. in lots of ways. We've touched on this, you know, uh, we've gone in and out of it, but I, I don't know that we've bitten the bullet. This business of being Irish, I can't imagine you except as an Irishman. Although I know you negotiate with other things outside of Ireland and and different, and yet you seem to me an Irishman, as I feel I am mm. an Irishman. What does that even mean? Is it possible that it meant something once and that it's, that, that meaning is leeching away? I don't know. I, I somehow feel that there's something frail about that. Yeah. Not necessarily about your Irishness, no, but no. about mine, about the, the whole thing. So I, I suppose I just want to start by asking, because it seems deeply rooted in you. Um, am I right in that, that you oh, feel yeah. very much? I do, I, I do, I, I agree, I do. And at yeah. the same time, I agree with you about the frailty of it mm. uh, in all of us. Because the, the whole globalist project is, seems to me directed at undermining that. Yes. You know, it's like undermining the glue that attaches us to our place and our nation and mm. our, our past. Which is logical from that point of view, you know, is that they want to reduce the friction, they want easier administration, they want bigger maybe maybe units of government. Um, but is that what we want? Well, well that's, there's that, Brendan, but there's also that they also want to make us amenable consumers. There we are, yeah. You yeah. know, that's the primary project, uh, product, I think, of it, that, that yeah. When you deracinate people, you 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 remove that those attachments, mm. uh, which would compete with the consumer experience, mm. because the, the consumer experience is very much tied to that false idea of freedom that we talked about. Mm -hmm. You know that because and I've I've written about this and I mean because I you know and I you know, this is interesting that's very important to say this you know I don't say these things from some high moral ground where I'm sort of judging. I, I actually say it completely from my own experience because I, I try and watch myself 
and the way that I am waylaid by certain ideas. Sure. I, I go through phases, like, I mean, I, and I've written about this. You go through phases maybe of buying new, you know, T-shirts or uh, sneakers or something like that, you know. And I, I'm very fascinated by the idea of, of the, that, that for a little while, for a, for a moment or two or ten, you get the idea somewhere deep within yourself that this is the answer to everything. Yes. This, this item. Yes. You know, and that it will change your life. Yeah. And that when you put it on, that moment will be perfect. You know, and, and that's the consumer thing. That's what they're selling. They're not selling items. Yes. They're selling dreams. Yeah. But the dreams very rarely come true. But let's say, let's put it at its highest. Yeah. And, and so that, that therefore, you know, this, that what they're offering us instead of our, of our loyalties. And it's not just nationhood. It's also, there are three fundamental loyalties that I think they have attacked in recent times. Nationhood is one. Before that is, or after that, is family. And above all, there is the relationship with God. Those three represent enormous threats to the would-be uh, order of power, what I call the combine. Because there's all these different elements sure. in the world, you know, big tech and big data and big government and big whatever. Uh, the combine. That was a phrase actually from one flew over the cuckoo's nest, uh, Chief Bromden. That's what he used mm. to call this vague entity that, he, that was always <laughs> manipulating everything. The combine. It's a beautiful concept. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so they, 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 these, these overarching loyalties that uh, of nature a man would die for. A man would die for his family, for his children. He would die for his nation. Has done. Many, many men have died. Yeah. Many women too. And he would die for his belief in God, and has many men and women have yeah. died. That's a terrible, uh, a, you know, threat yeah. to those who would have all power in the world. Yeah. And and that's where it all comes from. So therefore, that they're working away on that, and I've been conscious of them working away on it for the last, you know, I would say for the last fifty years, very mm. strongly in Ireland. I would say almost since, I remember very clearly 1966, the 50th anniversary of the Rising. And I think that at that time, everything was more or less intact. I mean, the, you know, it wasn't a perfect country. There was zealotry and fanaticism and all kinds of things. But I'm talking about the deep, passionate attachment to Ireland was universal in Ireland. It was, again, it was like the belief in God. It yeah. was obvious. You know, it was, was non-controversial. And then that kind of started changing. For the reason, first in instance, that, that um, the trouble started in the north and that mm. created certain kind of uh, ricochets, as it were, down here and, and so on. But to answer your question, I mean, what is it? What does it mean? Well, you see, you can't break it down. It's not, it's not blood, it's not soil, purely. I mean, those are purely abstractions to, to kind of measure, you know, something that isn't really, won't give you the right answer. It's, it's something that is, it's a passion that is, that is you know, like yeah, last night when we arrived here, I used to work here many years ago, more years than I can even account for, you know, that, that I mean, God Almighty, if I told you many years, I can't believe I would be saying these numbers, you know, it's actually, it's actually 43 years since I left Westport, having worked here for yes. a couple of years. But we were looking across from the hill outside town uh, at the Reek, you know, and, and I can't describe like what it does to me to look yeah. at that site like. Yes. I mean, and that's, that's Ireland. And that was yes. in my head, this is Ireland. Now I, do, I, I can, again, going back to the thing about the words, the, we use the least inadequate words. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I, I love Ireland deeply in a way that it's not possible to love a hunk of territory or land, an island. Yeah. I don't know what that is. How do you, how do you love an island? Yeah. But I do. And, and it's not just the, the, the landscape, it's not just... If I was to identify one quality that sort of speaks for, for, for everything, it is about the Irish sense of humour. It's, it's the connection that happens. It's an electricity that happens between yeah. two Irish people, randomly, haphazardly, mm -hmm. uh, accidentally almost. Uh, and then it just feels, it's like it, there's no pudgy, no drink that can make you feel as good. Yeah. It could only last for 30, might last for 30 seconds, but yeah. it's like an electric current that yeah. charges you again. Because you know where you come from. You've, you've connected to, to the very, the, the, the antecedents the, yes. uh, of the antecedents. I mean, it's all it's been there always like that. Yeah. Because of the history that came down upon it. Yeah. And and the reactions to it. Yeah. You know, and you can see it in, in the best of our art. You know, the best yes. of our writing in Beckett and, and Martin McDonough. I think is very very yeah. got it as an outsider. He got it like you know. Yeah. I mean, the, there's a brilliant line at the very open of the Beauty Queen of Lanan where the old lady is sitting in the chair in the house and uh, her daughter is or much put upon daughter is sweeping the step or something yeah. like that. And she, the old lady says to her, she says, wet, Maureen. And she says, of course, wet. You know, and there's a, a deep pessimism that is absolutely hilarious, you know, yeah. to the Irish person. Yes. You yeah. just burst out laughing when you hear that. What were you expecting? <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the whole history yeah. of the country, yeah. like in, in an exchange, yes. you know. But there's an attitude as well, it's like, well, but we can't go on, we must go on, we go on. That's right, that's right. Yeah. So, and that's going, you know, it's been, it's been ironed out of us. Uh, you don't see it so much, you don't encounter it so much now among young people, particularly in the cities. In the country you will. You know, you could be in a hotel in the west of Ireland, like, and there'll be a young fella or a young girl, like, and, and she'll be maybe just working as a, in the dining room for the, the holidays. And she'll actually come over and have a conversation with you that has no angles to it other than yeah. this is who she is. Yeah. You don't find that very often now in the world. Just two human beings. Yeah, and understanding each other. Yeah. Reading yeah. between lines and, and reading yeah. all kinds of things. Negotiating each other. Okay, <laughs> negotiating at a deep level. Yes. Of, yes. Of, of that can actually, you know, yeah. almost like inspire you to confess your innermost yeah. secrets in that moment. Yeah. It's so pure. Do you remember the ending of that play, The Week in the Life of a Shopkeeper's Assistant, Tom Murphy? I know the play, yeah. It's where the young fella loses the head with the family and with all its secrets in the small town. He yeah. stands out in the street and starts telling the street what the parents think of them, <laughs> which is, of course, causing chaos. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. The way Irish people are so careful with each other. Yes. A lot of Irish people would have had no trouble um, making it in diplomacy. You no, know, and apparently Irish diplomats are very skilled. From a small country, they're very busy everywhere. They're yeah, well, there's yeah, a, yeah there we can, there's that side of us that we can read. It's amazing, actually. We can read each other very well, very fast, mostly. Yeah. I mean, it's actually one of the most the funniest occasions for comedy is the whole idea of the in, somebody in the group who doesn't get it and who isn't tuned in and who's saying things. And I've had that experience so many times where we read each other so fast, but one person won't read and they'll walk right into it. And, and it's, it's, it's an amazing thing to watch, you know, uh, that uh, it's just never happened. 
in the like that that somebody could fail to actually understand the dynamics. Tom Murphy used to talk about this, you know, a, 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 a language and subtext. That is, he, he, he I wrote about this recently. He 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 was telling me one day about um, the importance of subtext because he you know he says in play, in a play he says it's all subtext. Everything is the words yes. are again. It's a little bit how we're talking about, you yes. know about. But he gave me this example of, uh, which is quite funny, uh, very small, very minor little, but he says, imagine he says, uh, and of course Tom was very droll, uh, mm, imagine, uh, you know, and, and uh, you go into a bar, you know, and, and uh, there's a, an old fella sitting up on a stool by the bar, and there's another stool, stool nearby, and you sit down, and you say, how are you doing? And he says, and... Uh, you engage at some level, you know, just mm. pleasantries. But then you kind of maybe ask a kind of a curious question, or it's like it's you know that kind of idea down the down the west is is information you're looking for. Yes, you know <laughs> that kind of question. And he says, and Murphy says, and he says to you, he says, yeah, but uh, what's your name like, you know? Yeah. He says every single syllable of that had deep meaning. Yes. You know, and yeah. you have to be able to read it. Yeah. This is the thing, you see. Because it's like he's saying to you, all right, yeah, but you didn't introduce yourself to me. Yeah. How dare you ask me questions of this nature yeah. without telling me your name, yeah. Lagarde? You know, but yeah. the, the you know is softer. It's like, okay, you're on your last chance now. Yeah. It's a way of asking for your papers. <laughs> it is. It <laughs> is. It is. It is. <laughs> uh, and this is something that, you know, what happens in you see in a culture that you you push that out of or extinguish it like is that it becomes all completely formulaic yeah uh, and it's like you know you people then start to rep to convert converse in lines from soap operas okay and think like the lines yes and you must remember it with all due respect like that soap operas are written by failed playwrights and they also have a have a, a an instrumental intention, generally speaking now, for propaganda and whatnot. You know, they're, they're writing storylines that are directed oh, yeah. at particular objectives yes. from a sociological yeah. yes. and cultural viewpoint. So th this is something that, again, passes notice. Yeah. This, the loss of, of, of that deep subtlety yeah. in a culture that we were all able to read one time. But now everybody just blunders across the lines because they're not, yes. they think everything will be conveyed instrumentally in a very kind of yeah. perfunctory manner, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, that it's all about telling you what's happened yesterday and what's the next plot twist is yeah. coming up is, you know. Uh, that's not how life is. Yeah. And, and that's a big factor, I think, in what's happened to our young people. Because remember, the generations that are growing up in the last 30 years, they're the first generations that have essentially been reared by strangers. Yeah in crisis care, childcare, because of the change in the workplace. Yeah. And that has that effect on them, that, that you know, their only, you know, their main access to understanding the yeah. world has been through cartoons, soap operas, and such like. Yeah. So they, they're never in the situation that we were in as children, where I was, you know, I was going on with my father, like, and, and uh, my father had all these friends like who were all tradesmen of different kinds you know yeah. uh, mechanics or dressmakers or saddlers or whatever it was and he would go into the workshop like and they would stop working for it seemed like any length of time you mm. could possibly want you yeah. know <laughs> like shoemakers <laughs> like they would literally talk for three hours yeah. and he wouldn't put a nail in the shoe you know yeah. uh, and uh, 
I would just sit there on whatever it was, like on a, yeah. sheet, on a butter box or a bag yeah. of meal and, and listen. And that's another thing, you know, that it goes in, you see. And you, you, obviously, yes. I, couldn't rec- I couldn't actually recite a single sentence that I heard from yes. any of those men, but it's all in there. Yes. All of this has been snatched, been like hoovered out of culture uh, without us even talking about it. Yeah. You mentioned eccentricity earlier. Is it possible that maybe a strong national feeling has become an intolerable eccentricity? It has. An indulgence almost, viewed as an indulgence. Well, you see, this is an interesting thing. You see, how mm. does this happen? And is this, you see, these things have the appearance of being organic, yeah. of being naturalistic phenomena, but they're not at all. They're mm-hmm. all engineered, in my opinion. And they you can be created, you know. I mean, you, you can see them coming now, where there's a certain war declared, clearly in the media, on certain kinds of thinking, you know. And there's a little bit of talking about, well, maybe it's time to do away with the national anthem, or maybe it's time to do away with the tricolour, or whatever, yeah. where we have a new kind of flag, or yeah. whatever. See, these things are floated, kites yeah. and, and all that is, is, is and when I look back, I mean, I became very acutely aware of that when I came to Dublin. Having come from the West, those things were kind of, again, non-controversial. Yeah. And your loyalty to Ireland and your affection for Ireland was axiomatic. And then to find that these things were being questioned and, and regarded as bad things, you know, and yeah. dangerous things. And, and that somehow it was, you know, the fact that I loved Ireland had something to do with some Protestant getting shot yes. in, in Armagh. Yes. yes. I, and I couldn't really see the connection, you yeah. know. And it was like that if we get rid of the feeling, yeah. then we eliminate the murders, yes. which it seems to me to be nonsense, did then and does now. Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, once you, that's the one way to, to madden people, is to, to actually remove their passions. Yeah. yeah. So there's all that going on. And, and yes, I, I, I do find now that uh, it is regarded as an eccentric thing. And I often say to friends of mine who are a bit like-minded, that you know, we are now like really mm. strange specimens mm-hmm. in Ireland who continue to talk about this thing, this love mm-hmm. for Ireland. You know, there's a kind of a thing that has come up in recent years where you see it on certain TV programmes or the interviewers, you know, it's a kind of a so what mentality mm-hmm. or who cares, you know, if Ireland is if over, who cares, you know, that kind of thing. And, and it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And, and, and all I can say to that is that, well, I'll be gone, but if you think it doesn't matter, then yeah. you're going to have to live with the consequences. Yes. Because I think it matters a hell of a lot, uh, you know. Well, they're busy trying to sell Irishness, but you'd be hard put to say what it is that they're selling, yes. whether they understand what they're selling, whether they understand how little is left in what they're selling. Yeah, that's right. Well, there was always that kind of disjunction. Uh, uh, Luke Gibbons uh, uh, has done a lot of work about this, you know, they, yeah. that on the one hand they're selling this kind of kitschy kind of uh, yeah. cottage and, and yeah. ass carts yes. view of Ireland. And then they're trying to sell Ireland as a perfect kind of place to bring, to bring your chemical industry. Uh, there we go. You know, and, and they can't reckon, they're in, irreconcilable in every yeah. conceivable way. And, and indeed it's the chaos, that's an exact, uh, you know, uh, parable. Mm-hmm of the, uh, the, the chaos we're talking about. Yeah. You know, because, you know, there's a strange thing about Ireland, you know, it's very hard to, it's intangible, you know, because if you actually try to name it, it, it disappears. It's mm-hmm. a bit like God in that, you know. Yeah. Do you remember Clark's, it used to be on for the Leaving Sir, or the, uh, Clark's poem, The Lost Heifer? Mm. I often think of it. Mm. You know, the, the, it's a beautiful description of the lowing of the, the heifer, the rain, the soft rain, the wind and the grass. 
that kind of thing. It's very evocative of the Irish landscape and weather. Yes. And you have the, the, the heifer that you can't see, but you can faintly hear the lowing. Yes. So what is Ireland? Yes. Well, Kavanaugh used to talk about this, and Kavanaugh went on all that journey through his life, and, and he wrote those books, you know, The Green Fool and then Terry yeah. Flynn, and he yeah. more or less disowned both of them after because he said they were too Irishy, you know? Yeah. And, and, and uh, he used to say that, you know, when a horse wins the Grand National, you know, what matters is its horsiness, it's not its Irishness, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and yeah. I get that as well. Yeah. But, you see, there's this trap. And I think it's actually a function of our arrested development yeah. as a culture because of our occupation. That we're constantly thinking you can define something at some point in its trajectory in a perfect way. Whereas if your culture is uninterrupted, it just is. Yeah. But because ours was consistently and persistently interrupted, we are constantly having to try to find the moment at which it was itself. Yeah and to reinvent it. That happened after independence, that we tried to reinvent ourselves or mm -hmm. by going backwards yeah. and rediscovering some Ireland, yeah. some authentic Ireland. Remember, there was all this stuff about, mm. uh, you know, banning jazz and all this yes. sort of stuff in the 40s, because uh, that was non-Irish. And they, the de-Anglicisation of Ireland had that. Because, but I mean, there was this paradox that even yeah. we were half English That's already. Well, there, there we are, the West British thing. Yeah. But to what extent is that actually not... Be, isn't it really there? Aren't it's there, there? But, but there's another side as well. You see, if you yeah. think about it, Brendan, like, I mean, like when I was growing up in the West, like, you know, and we weren't really conscious of any of this. It just was. But, like, we were in school and we were hearing the, the brothers and, and, and say in 66, and it was all Pierce and Connolly and, 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 mm. and McDonough and all that. And, you know, the, the Balfinian men and, you know, all that. And at the same time, at home, we were reading like Enid Blyton and the Dandy and the Hotspur. And mm. So we were, we were kind of, there was a kind of a certain split mm -hmm. in us, but we were able to reconcile that. Yeah. Like, we didn't dislike one because of the other or vice versa, you know what I mean? We didn't reject the English influence mm -hmm. by virtue of a loyalty to Ireland, nor did we reject Ireland because we liked this stuff from England. Yes. And, and we were able to, to like, Ivor Brown used to talk about that, that the Irish personality has a, a great capacity for both and, both this and that. Whereas the English is either or, Anglo-Saxon is, you have to be one thing or another. Uh, like uh, Paul Durkin has a poem about that, he says, he says, uh, you have to be one side, you have to pick one side or the other or nothing but a fucking romantic. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what we are, we're fucking romantics. Yeah. Uh, and I think that uh, 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 that holding things in mm. is part of the humour as well. Okay. Because we, we can laugh at ourselves while expressing the deepest pathos. Can I bring up something that I believe is um, just about contained in the attic by modern Ireland? I, I, I thought the management of the commemoration in 1916 was masterly. It was a masterly exercise in palliative care. You know, I really thought it was very well done. I, was, I didn't think they could do it that well because as we both know what stalked through the post office, I don't know if that's Yates' line, is not easily tamed. No. Collins has been kind of given to us as the kind of glamour boy. Yes. Which is a very simplistic understanding of a very, quite a dark, ruthless man. Very. Yeah. 
Um, Collins was a hard man. Very hard. Very hard man. De Valera has been sold to us as the baddie, as the bad guy. That's right. When in fact we both know De Valera was actually a very complex man. Yes. You know? Very brilliant man in many ways. Yes. And a rugby player and Carson Horler. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, those, those crazy things in, in, in Irish history. But they don't seem to want to talk about another man much, which I find fascinating is that uh, he hasn't been rehabilitated as Pierce. No. I think they're afraid of Pierce. They are afraid of him because he, he carries the whole sense of the history. I mean, there's so many misunderstandings, in my opinion, uh, and in my view of, of the whole thing, of, of our history in that regard. I mean, the guys that came before, the great figures, uh, O'Connell and, and Parnell, all these guys in Redmond, they were a different breed, different mentality completely to Pierce. Uh, and maybe Collins, I think, was owed more to Pierce in that respect. But Pierce's Pierce's sense of Ireland was that Ireland had been enslaved. That that's the central understanding mm-hmm. you need to under with Pierce. Like that's what he, he's not talking about negotiating, uh, uh, you know, uh, our independence or anything. He's talking about freeing slaves, slumbering slaves. Yes, breaking their chains, and. He saw this as a profoundly existential mission, that, and he understood it, I think, totally. I mean, you have to go on another 60 years before you, and read Franz Fanon, uh, writing out of Algeria in, in the Civil War there in the late 50s. To, uh, you have to go to him to actually find a more embellished description of the slave mentality and the process of liberation. The wretched of the earth. Yes. Yeah, and I, I suspect uh, that, that uh, Fanon would have been aware of Pierce because Pierce was, was hinting or he was stating these things in very kind of broad strokes in his essays there before, in the years, two years before the, the rising. And that's the thing that people don't get because keep, I keep hearing people saying, well, you know, if he'd waited another two years, we'd have got our independence, you know, they would have given us home rule. He didn't want home rule. He didn't want to be given. He said it, you know, that it is a glory to be achieved, not a concession to be granted. Yeah. And, and that was the key thing of, of, of the whole point of the rising from his point of view. So he was a different kind of person. And, and he was a very gentle man, but he believed in, in that, that, you know, when, that slavery is a form of violence, obviously, a very extreme yeah. form of violence, and can only be met with violence. Yeah. And that's the way, again, you have to see. I mean, you can't yeah. apply our logic of the present moment, or oh, it would be terrible to go up and go shooting around the GPO. Yes, it would be stupid, but that's not what was happening. Mm-hmm. There was a liberation struggle. There was a liberation of the very psyche and soul of the human, of the Irish human person. Mm-hmm. And that was his mission. And, and that was a far bigger mission than any of those figures who came. They're not comparable, in my opinion, nothing like it, nor indeed anyone who came after him. I think the greatest tragedy in the entire history of Ireland was the execution of Harry Pierce. And many would say it was the death of Collins, the untimely death of Collins, that he was the last leader. Well, Collins was... Yeah. A, was a, I, I think of him almost as, as, a, as Pierce's executor. Yeah. Because he, he, he implemented... That's, that's interesting you know, the, the, the mission in a very practical way. People tend to forget, I think, that Collins uh, was very determined once the Free State had been consolidated to continue the war yes. surreptitiously in the North. Yes. 
Yes. Oh, he would have. Yeah. Yeah. He was. He he was a soldier. Yeah. Uh, he, like Pierce wasn't a soldier at all. No. Uh, Clark was the soldier among real soldier among the the, the, the signatories and among their insurrection insurrectionaries, but 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 Pierce was a very brave man. Yeah. And uh, and his brother Willie was a very brave man. I mean, they they were fantastic people. And again, you know, we're talking now. This to go back briefly to the the question of Irishness and all that. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine the kind of mentality? Have we ever met a man? Who is prepared to die for there Ireland? You go. Is it any more than meeting Jesus Christ and trying mm. to figure out what he would say to you? Like, can you imagine a man like that? What he would say to you? And yet, I can't help feeling that as a culture, in to paraphrase, if I if I may, the wor- the, the words of Jesus Christ, uh, for he that tries, what is it? He that loses his life shall save it, but he that tries to save it, even so shall he lose it. Yeah. We we we've um, we've turned our face away from self-sacrifice. And yet we still find that what we have is falling through our fingers. The, yes. You know, we've, we've sold that for something else. But we it, have. But that doesn't last. No, it doesn't last at all. Yeah. And, and, and you see, we didn't understand any of that stuff, you know. And, because, and in fairness, you know, it, it was very simplistically conveyed, I think. Sure. Uh, and no more than Christianity was simplistically conveyed. So we didn't really understand... Uh, Except there were like just kind of shadowy figures moving on a screen, as it were, in the past, and and uh, they had weird ideas, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we couldn't contextualize them in the present, and nor indeed they couldn't, they couldn't, couldn't be, and can't be contextualized in the present because the whole sentiment, the whole passion, the whole context is missing. Even then, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't entirely uncontroversial uh, un- to the, what they did by any means, uh, but afterwards it became so that it became axiomatic that that this needed to be done yeah and there was no other way yeah to f- if ireland's uh, dignity was to be preserved but you see what happened then was i think de valera my father was a, a, a fin gator coming a gator and all that and and uh, he obviously f- therefore thought de valera was the devil yes. <laughs> yeah. yes yes but he used to always say that de valera did one great thing and that was the constitution of 1937 you know, yeah. he said that he thought that was a fabulous document and and then again that was the level that you know the, the mm. my father used to carry like at the time i found it after he died the the draft bon rock it's mm. carried around in his pocket and it was yeah. all earmarked and marked and Good oh, God. these discussions would take yeah. place you know in these workshops yeah that was a kind. That was, I, I think, Crawford talks about that. Matthew Crawford, the philosopher, the American guy, who talked about. It. He said, he thought that is the republic. That is the real republic, yeah. where that interaction between men who are in control of their powers, yes. uh, in terms, yeah. of, in other words, their hands. Yeah, they can make and fix things. Yes, and they then apply that thinking to the world. Yeah, and that's the republic, and yeah. that's. Again, an idea that is so beautiful and uh, such a beautiful encapsulation of what a democracy and what a republic might yes. be. But we can't simplify things in that way anymore. Uh, so I, d- I do think that uh, De Valera was a brilliant man, but he, he didn't have Pierce's vision. Yeah. He, didn't, he didn't see this profound necessity of the slave to free himself, yeah. symbolically, and actually, yeah. to shake off the manacles, to break them off himself, yes. and, and, and strike back, not necessarily you know, in a lethal way, but, but to, assert, yeah. to assert his humanity. I mean, all those great men were, were executed, and it's somewhat unfair to say that, that De Valera was the captain of the second 15, but 
there was a sense in which he he was kind of trying to do everything himself and mm. he didn't have all the talents that you would mm. have needed to do that uh, and he was up against very very tricky forces as well that that uh, were uh, working against any uh, true liber liberation project Ireland never really became free I don't think you know uh, uh, we never succeeded in doing what Pierce wanted mm -hmm. uh, we always remain culturally tied to, to a, an idea. We couldn't figure ourselves out we, in, in, in conceptual terms. We couldn't describe ourselves. We couldn't uh, define ourselves. And we were always trying, you know. We always wanted to know what other, everybody else thought of us, you see, because mm -hmm. we had no self-confidence. Mm -hmm. That idea, you see, that, that Kavanagh talked about this idea of um, the Irishness thing and the Irish thing and how, how, how tricky it was. And it is true, and you see, the, if you, you can see the threads of this confusion arising in modern Irish literature. For a while there, you saw this kind of eru uh, uh, eruption of kind of tower block fiction, you know, that kind of thing, you know, f flats and, you know, it's towers and all this sort of stuff. And that was kind of like the New Ireland, that idea. Now, that's a very, that's a very typical kind of idea because that's a reaction against another Ireland, which is defined by the Thatched Cottage, mm -hmm. and it's defined by de Valera's so-called dream speech of 1943. And peg. And peg and all that. But the problem you see is, with all that is, that if you define yourself uh, an Ireland that excludes all those things, you're not defined in Ireland, no. because those things are there. You're driving down the road and there's a Thatched Cottage and there's someone mm. living in it. So mm. you're gonna to have to deal with that too, just as you have to deal with the flats. Yes. You know, and that's the trick. There's a kind of a, a, a fossilization of ideas that happens in a colonized culture, of, of images of the of the being of the self of the of the, of the, the the national home, and and it takes an amazing amount of thought and reflection to free yourself in a way that you can mm -hmm. negotiate all that stuff, and we didn't have that, we didn't have any, after Joyce and Beckett and those guys, and they were kind of. Beckett really was a very smart guy, but he didn't really provide a literature, a national literature. He left, you know, he became a French writer, in effect. All our great writers, of course, have abandoned the ship, you know. There were no philosophers. We don't have a tradition of philosophy in modern Ireland at all. I mean, there is going back, but nothing. So we were completely adrift without anybody describing what was happening. And then we imported all this kind of stuff from outside, you know, the television stuff and all this, and we just started replicating what they were doing and mm -hmm. applying their models to our situation. Yeah. And this turned into bedlam, you know, and is bedlam now, and, and is about to become worse because we're, we're um, imagining that, uh, you know, we can import the world and, and that it will integrate to Ireland and that it'll be all cosy. It won't. It won't. It can't be because we don't know who we are to begin with. Yeah. You know, and, and we didn't get time or didn't take time to reflect mm -hmm. deeply enough on that question. Maybe we didn't have the talent, the resources mm -hmm. to do it. But we weren't listening to anyone who was talking either. Yeah. Um, and we were kind of, you know, ah, oh, we don't do it. You know, I remember actually that speech of de Valera's, uh, the 1943 speech, a very interesting speech in lots of ways. You know, it's known as the, the comely maidens dancing at the crossroads. St. Patrick's Day, was it? That's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. It was on the radio. Yeah. Now, I've spoken about that. And I've written several long essays about yeah. that speech because it's a very interesting speech. But, you know, everybody knows it. If you say comely maidens dancing at the crossroads, they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, devil there. Contests <laughs> of athletic youths. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But he didn't use the word comely. He didn't mention dancing. 
Yes. And he didn't mention Crossroads. Okay. That's a caricature. <laughs> it's a complete caricature. And the reason is that that's, I would actually, and my thesis has been that that speech was used more than any other single instrument to propel Ireland out of its past yes. and into an unknowable future. Yeah. Because everything you wanted to say, if you wanted to dismiss, to dismiss anybody talking about Ireland, you just say, ah, oh, De Valera, oh yeah, comely maidens, oh, more of that. Dancing you know, at the grassroots. Yeah. Next thing you'll have us all snagging turnips again. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the logic. And, and I, mean, I, I thought back, I remember actually back in, in, in 2008, after 2008, after the collapse of the economy, I was down somewhere like League Clip or somewhere like that, and I was doing a talk in a parish hall. And I, I just thought, I just thought I'd, I'd try to test the temperature, like to see if the collapse of everything that they had embraced in rejection of De Valera and the, twi- the, 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 the dream speech, the Ireland, the Celtic Tiger, the collapse of the Celtic yeah. Tiger, which was the reaction to that. I, I was just interested, would, they, would that experience have chastened people? Mm-hmm. Would it have caused them to rethink? So mm-hmm. I, just put out a thing about De Valera and this, the dream speech. Not a bit of it. They were just as vehement against De Valera as they had been 10 years before. No lessons had been learned in that area at all. Because actually, when you break that speech down and when you look at it, he's essentially articulating a green view of Ireland yes. before the word was invented. Yeoman farmers. Yeah. yeah. Small property owners. Yeah. And yeah. aspirations tailored to the natural yeah. structure of man. Yeah. And the realisation that actually which is proved economically, uh, 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 the relationship between wealth and happiness is more or less parallel until you get to the point of satisfying the natural basic needs of humanity, yeah. and then they come completely out of sync altogether. Yeah. That it takes vastly more money to make you this little bit more happy. There you go. Yeah. You know, and that, De Valeri was saying this in the speech, mm-hmm. essentially, in broad strokes. Yeah. And that's the green message, if, if you distill yeah. down what they, what I mean, it's become very corrupted now, but that I think, idea... Did you talk about a frugal comfort? Frugal comfort, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, cosy ha- homesteads, yeah. you know, uh, firesides of life with the yeah. ser- serenity of old age. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, you yeah. know, it was a very human Oh, vision. beautiful. I mean, and, and described in Ireland, if you actually think, I, I think if you put that Ireland now, that Ireland, that vision, mm-hmm. alongside Ireland now, which I see as being defined very darkly by two rooms. Yeah. And those two rooms are... The childcare room, the creche, where children, little babies of three to f- four or five months are being dumped yeah. at seven in the morning yeah. until five or six in the afternoon mm. in the care of strangers. That's one room. The other room is the, where we'll all be dumped in, when our time comes, which is the nursing home. There you go. Yeah. And you have there a room where I've been in many a one, like visiting people, God help them. I've run out of them and, and I've had to, you know, take it to the bed after it. Yeah, no, it's tough. You're right. You know, that you see this room, like, and and, and Mm. all these people sitting around the perimeter of the room, the television blaring there, you know. You know, uh, uh, some talk show, you know, Dahi and so on, and and they're all cooking something or something, and it's all banter and nonsense. And these people are absolutely dead already, sitting around. No talk between them. Yeah. These are people like who loved Ireland, who worked all their lives to rear their families, mm-hmm. to, to do their work. These are people who have like, like unbelievable kind of experiences to relate. Yeah. And they're just discarded like that. Like, 
you know. Those people, when I was a child, like, they were the people who came across the fields to my grandmother's house. They were mostly elderly people. I suppose maybe everyone was elderly to me then, but mm. uh, they were. I mean, they were like 70s or thereabouts, a lot of them. Like, a lot of them were like that. They were the kind of people you'd see sitting on the windowsill of a sunny day, you know? Yeah. With a walking stick like that, you know? That's right. And, and yeah. a word for everyone and a chat. And yeah. Like, they, were, they, they stayed at home. Yeah. And they were looked after at home. Yeah. Like, that, that's, 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 you know, we need to start reflecting, like, on all the things we were yes. jeering and skitting at. Yes. And whether there was something in them or not. Because there was a hell of a lot more in them than we heard. And there was a hell of a lot more in what De Valera was talking about in that speech. Than, than anybody heard at the time, because we didn't want to hear, because we needed, it's like me and the Elvis or Jesus thing. Yeah. I didn't want to hear anymore. I, I'm, Jesus is a nice fella, but I'm gone. Yeah. You know, that was my attitude. And that's yeah. our attitude, you know, that's all very well, but yeah. who's going to pay for it? You know? Yeah. Where's the money going to come from? Yeah. Like, and, and you know, I, I, I think we need to revalue that. And that's not, I'm not saying this in any judgmental way. I'm as guilty as anybody for mm -hmm. all, on all of these counts as well. I've seen it. That's, I suppose, maybe that makes me all the more culpable. Mm -hmm. I see it and then I take part in, or I go along with, to some extent, mm. what's happening. Uh, you know, that we're all sucked into this materialist kind of circus. And it's very hard to get out of it, you know. It's very hard to, to live your life differently. Yeah. People who talk, which is a lot of people, very calmly about Ireland now as a post-Catholic, post-Christian uh, society. Um, like that's about 1,500 years of history, which is a huge amount of history. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the question I'm asking, because I know it's something you've thought about a lot, is how would you put this? You lobotomize a culture like this. Like you take a chunk out of its brain. Because Catholicism is a part of our history, yeah. huge part of our history. Is, yeah. I mean, it gave us our vernacular literature originally. It helped to, it was midwife to it. Yes. So without Catholicism, have we a vision for being Irish? No. Now, I know some Protestant people would find that question offensive, but I'm not trying to do that. No. I'm not trying to be sectarian. It's just that most, uh, the majority in, the, in this jurisdiction, at least, were Catholic. Well, you, know? uh, well, you see, I, I think there's... That, that, the question, Brennan, doesn't exclude Protestantism. No, in my it opinion. doesn't. It doesn't, you know, because, you know, they, no. they, they're yin and yang and they're, they're different elements. They're the same thing, yeah. you know, in a certain sense within the culture. I mean, that's not... Or indeed, you know, Irish Catholicism is very particular because it has its roots in pagan Ireland mm. in a very strong way. And, and, you know, there's a lot of probably that kind of thing. That a lot of that has strayed into our thinking as well. But Catholicism is... Yeah, it's in our bones, uh, you know, and it doesn't matter what we call ourselves. That's that's the thing, you know. You mm -hmm. know, you can call yourself what you like, but you're still a Catholic. Yeah, there's no such thing as an ex, an ex Catholic in Ireland. No, yeah. thing, no such thing as an. You might, you can declare yourself. You can, you know, whatever you want to do. You know, that's, in, that's interesting. You can't. Yeah. It's in your bone because the very basis of of your thinking is Catholic. Uh, and that's a very profound form of thinking. I mean, you know, the, the Catholicism, you know, for all that we have railed against aspects of it and, and, and fought it and, you know, you know as, 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 as the great John Keneally, uh, poet from Castlereagh, wrote there's a great beautiful line, he says, I am a child who cried on the way to chapel. Hmm. You know, we all did, you know, we all fought on the way to be baptised, you know, <laughs> as it were. And, and we wailed and when the water hit the forehead. Mm -hmm. But we are that... And when you go in the richness of Catholicism, 
Catholicism, I would say, is the only thing that stands philosophically in the world against tyranny, ultimately. It's the only thing that, that will save the world from uh, ideology, which is a reduction of all of the great thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, for all that we have such a distorted view of it in Ireland, for somewhat understandable reasons, because it sure. was, as we said, oversimplified, there's a deep richness there. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, uh, you know, it's, it's gone a little bit strange in, in institutionally in recent times, but that inheritance doesn't exist anywhere else. Yeah. And, and the culture of our, you know, anthropology, and I'm talking about in the, the anthropological understandings, the ethical understandings of Catholicism, all of that, you know, and thought purely in a, in, a, in a practical, sociological almost frame. But uh, there's all much deeper than that, which is the, the whole way of being with each other is actually predicated on this relationship with Christ, with the imagined figure of this, this man, Jesus. What, your sense of what he would think of what you are, how you are conducting yourself. They're very profound ideas. And, and the only reason for railing against them is the old one. It's the one that we talked about. It's going in search of that other kind of freedom, which you know, we have enough intelligence now, intelligence gathered, to tell us is fruitless. It's not going to lead to where we think it is. The anticipation of all those things will be better than the things themselves. They will all disappoint. As Augustine says, everything eventually turns to disgust. That's the mm -hmm. human experience of these things. And then when you look around you, like, you know, you see all the different addictions, you know, and, you know, without going into being too graphic about them, like, but you can see them in Ireland now in the landscape of Ireland. Mm -hmm. The change that has happened, and even in the shape of people in the last uh, 20 years. These are all symptoms mm -hmm. of this misunderstanding of the structure of the human person. So the, the, there's no escaping all this. And the, the way I put it is like, well, theoretically, you would say, you, you, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be Catholicism. You would say that, but we do need, first of all, some form of metaphysical understanding sure. which unifies people. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, you say, okay, well, it doesn't. Well, in theory, no, but in practice, yes, it does. There's no one, there is nothing going to take the place of Catholicism mm. now except nothing yeah. or nothingness. So we either rehabilitate it, reboot it, shake it down, look at the parts that are functional, which they are many. Well, the core of it is what, what it is. And that is absolutely critical to the understanding of the human person. It's not a question of a set of rules or guidelines. I think we need to find a way of, of revisiting that whole area. I'm sorry to say that I think that the leadership of the Church in Ireland has been very derelict and, and will not, in my opinion, be the, 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 the guard that, that enables us to carry that out. I don't think that will happen. Uh, but it absolutely needs to happen. Something needs to happen like that that we... Why do you think that is? Is it peculiar to the Irish situation or is it just a, a sort of a general thing now? It's a general thing, but there's a there are particular for some reason the Irish Church has seemed to constantly go for the administrator over the inspirer. I get you. Yeah, you know, uh, I don't yeah. know why that is. It just seems to be a way that it's safetyism, I suppose. Here's the theory: Is it because this is the stock I come from? Although I know in, in Ireland it was an insult, but is it a peasant thing? 
to, to value the, the man who can make it happen. Yeah, well, it is. It is a bit. I suppose clientelist culture would would yield such a, you know, but and, and management. I mean, who can just like, deliver? Yes. you know, concrete results, verifiable, quantifiable. Is it? I remember you saying that we're practically incomprehensible without taking into the famine into account. Yes. The the terror of dislocation, of having no no food, no house, um, the obsession with property. I wonder, is it an extension of that? Is it, oh, is I, it kind I believe, of... I believe all these things. See, I, I, yeah. I have long believed, Brendan, that actually our memories are far, far longer than our lives and, and, and that they're far, far, far longer than we actually know. Hmm. We remember things that we didn't even experience. Wow, that's interesting. You know, because we hear... I used to see it like, you know... I, I remember one night, I was wrote a book one time, which was actually funny enough about... You two were the centre of it, but it was actually a story of Ireland. How culture... How culture will tra- transmogrify and still carry things from centuries before? Is that possible? That mm-hmm. was that question. And I was using you too to tell the story. And uh, I had a terrible time on the Late Late Show because uh, Gay, Gay Byrne always wanted you to reduce everything to three points. Okay. Yeah, three points. He want, that's all he wanted. <laughs> and he wanted them on, he had them on the sheet in front of him, right? Yes. And he said, you were saying that. And, uh, yeah. And uh, it was a terrible time because the panel didn't, because the, 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 the Gay's technique was he, he would go to you first and give you every chance to vindicate yourself and to, to, you know. But if you started, if you were not doing the business, he went to the panel and he tried to go the panel against you then, you see. And that wasn't hard either. And if that didn't work, he went to the audience and that did work because yeah. he'd always, he'd turn them on you, you see. Yes. He went up to a fellow in the course of this, he says to him, <laughs> he walked, out, walked away with me, and he says, front row, he says to you, do you think we're talking a lot of nonsense? He says, I do. <laughs> As you could, I mean, the answer was made. But, but what I was talking about, and I said this, I remember the one sentence I got out in that night, it was one of those nights that I was in the late, late and I actually, you know, the mic was here, like, you mm. know, and I was actually on the point of thinking, now if I could just clip that off, drop it on the floor, skip it out the back. Yes. They'd never miss me. Yes. Because it was going really bad because I wasn't getting it across and what was in the book because the book was a very, oh, it's big, you know. But I remember once getting this sentence out and I said, Gay, I says, I could see the famine in the way my uncles walked. And what I meant by that was, I watched an uncle of mine like grew up on Mount Edward in the mountains up in Sligo and, yeah. and, and I'd see him going down the street in Castlery, like, you know, my town, but and I could see the diffidence in him. Yes. You know, in the way he walked. He, like, he trying to make himself invisible. Yes. You know? Yeah, there's that play of Murphy's as well. There's a scene in that, uh, the, the crucial week in the, where John Joe says he's over with his girlfriend, mm. you know, and he's explaining about his parents, you know, and he says, because he has, he's this new jacket, you see. Yes. He, he can't wear it, because they're in the ashes, like, they're yeah. sitting at the fire, like, and he's going out enjoying himself, you know? Yes. And, and he's trying to explain it to the girlfriend. He says, uh, but he says, no, he says, uh, you don't understand. He says, you know, he says, I do, I do. No, he says, you don't understand. He says, he says, he says I can't enjoy this worst coat. Do you understand? And he used to take the coat off. He used to take it down from the stairs and he carried it under his arm. He wouldn't put it on until he was outside the house. Oh, wow. Because it was an emblem of something. It was, well, it was money and it was aspiration and it yes. was vanity. And yes. it was, or my father would call it conceit. Yes. You know, all those things, which are natural for young people. Yeah. But he says, I can't enjoy this sports court. I, I, I said, 
I got it. I know yes. it. I know I was there. I was there. Like, and, and this is the thing, like, we, we are carrying all these scars from those centuries ago. Mm -hmm. The fear of, and no. that's why we've become so materialistic. And of course, we tend to forget the famine in historical terms is not that long ago. Oh, it's very short. Well, when I started talking about this, you know, I, I really started at about 1995 was the 150th anniversary. By the way, there's a very, I mean, there's a particular individual, and he's right, he's right about this. We use the word famine as a shorthand. I do, anyway. Yes. It's not a, it wasn't a famine. It was a genocide. Yeah. Let's be, I, that's my view. And, and but that's, I, I still doesn't, that doesn't negate the word yeah. famine. It was an info, like fa Pierce talks about this in the very first line of uh, Murder Machine. He says, the fa the, when the English start a, a famine in one of their dependencies, they never do it for fun. That's right. He does. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's the meaning I put on it. Like, so just yeah, to be clear. He said they're not I, a cruel people. Yeah. Everything they do yes. has a point. It has a point, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, I, and I, so I'm not talking about the potato famine. I think that's a very insidious phrase, potato mm -hmm. famine, because that tries to deflect the, the point. But anyway, that's another story. And, and, but what we're talking about here is the, the way those scars can be inherited, can be handed on. And I think they are. I think that, you know, the way we move, the way we feel, the way we laugh, the way we cry is all inherited. And the history is all in it, if you, if you pay attention. It's like going back to that thing Murphy was talking about, the subtext. It's all there if you want to listen for it. And Murphy could listen. He had an extraordinary gift for that, you know. He, well, he used to tell me, you know, and this is off the point, but it's really important, like, he, how he used to write, you know. Yeah. I remember him describing to me one day, he was in the living in the house in Ratgar, and he had the windows. It was a sunny day in June, you know. And... Uh, Pull the court curtains over all day long, and he put on he put on Maria Callas on the the record player, and he'd be drinking wine. You know, he'd be sitting there, and he, that that was the journey. Mm. He was going in, he was going down, down, okay. down. And I remember he said to me, you know, and John, he says, you know, uh, I heard it, I was sitting there, and and you know, uh, the children, laughter in the back garden, life. And all this, for what? Black marks on white paper. You know, but that's what he did. That's the gift of the artist. Like the yeah. Murphy was like a, a great, great artist, an yeah. extraordinary genius of Ireland. He never really broke it big anywhere outside, but he was the greatest playwright we've ever produced and can stand with the greatest, in my opinion. He got that. And he used to do that. I mean, Oliver Brown used to do it. He did an analysis once of, a, of a, one of his plays. I forget which one it was now. But the language in it was the one I think about the famine. Yeah. I think it was where he, he, he actually said, this language doesn't exist. Yeah. He said, they're real words. He says, but nobody, they're, they're, he has found them somewhere. Like they're, they're, they're not invented. Yes. They're not imagined. Yes. They're actually reimagined. Yeah. So I, I, I certainly believe that, and, yeah. and uh, when I was, I used to, I mean, I was very friendly with Ivor Brown as well, and he always said this that you know, that that you know, pain can be impressed in the body, mm -hmm. uh, you know, by experience, by an accident, for example, mm -hmm. in an ordinary uh, context, but deeper, it can be carried for centuries mm -hmm. in bodies. Uh, so I, I think that we have totally disregarded this aspect, and we talk about you know. All this, you know, the, the, we we mock our own past and our yes. own and our own right to to to, as it were, as they now say, the for 
to own it, you know. Yes. Uh, this kind of the the mope, you know, most yeah. oppressed people ever. This, yes, you know, yes, this, yes. This revisionist jeer, you know. Yeah. I think that has done a lot of harm. I think, you know, in my lifetime, the two greatest damaging, most damaging forces have been the provisional IRA and, and, and the revisionist movement. All right. Because they have been a pincer movement which have squeezed yes. the spirit of the Irish nation nearly out of existence. See, I was going to ask you, this may be a fanciful thing on my part, but I was going to ask you, do you see a significance in the fact that Pierce and Connolly and those, they wore uniform, they took over identifiable points in the city and they invited the most powerful army in the world, or certainly one of them, mm. albeit distracted at the time. Yes. But obviously, as we saw, as we see from history, not distracted enough to be able to deal with them when it got its... Yes. It's focus on Dublin. Yes. Is it possible that something did slip in the War of Independence? No uniform guerrilla tactics. Now, realistically, I don't know what else would have worked. But is it possible that there was a dark price, that we made a dark bargain there? We did, That yeah. Pierce wouldn't make? No, I, I, I believe that's where the line is. And do you remember he stopped the rising because of the civilian death rate? Mm. Yes. Well, it's insofar as he could. As far as he could, at that stage, yes. But he, he, like, I do think that uh, war is terrible. War is terrible. And terrible things yeah. are happened. Terrible things seem to be necessary in war. Let's put yeah. it like that. Yeah. And it takes a particular kind of a person to be engaged in those kind of things and not become corrupted by it. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, to kill another human being mm. is a tremendous thing, is a terrible thing. Mm -hmm. But actually, once you've done it once, yeah. it, it gets easier, I gather. And, and that's, that's the, the, you know, the discipline you know, that you need. It's like well, it, to be a soldier is a, is, is, is a very particular thing. Weren't the black and tans, in a sense, the tormented products of, of the killing fields in Flanders? They were, yeah. They were totally distorted. As, you know, they, that was kind of like you know, the way that we, we now know about in v the Vietnam, uh, Vietnam War you know, and all mm. of that. You know. Uh, the trauma, the post-traumatic sh stress disorder, sh or shock disorder. I mean, it's just, uh, this is central. But we, this happened in, in, in more recent times. It happened in, in the North, I think, in, in, uh, in the 70s and 80s. It happened to the provisionals. They became completely corrupted in mm. that same way. Um, there was a play, a great play, um, Defenders of the Faith, it was called, by Stuart Carolyn, which is really a chilling play. Uh, I saw it in the Abbey one time. He used to, he, he, he wrote uh, that love action, what is that thing on TV? The, the crime uh, drama? Yes. Love Hate. Love Hate, yeah, he wrote yeah. that. Uh, brilliant guy. Very but gritty, very, very sharp. Very gritty, yeah. Thing, but this, know, was, yeah. this was really dark. Yes. Uh, you couldn't come out from that and not be in any doubt that the entire culture had been corrupted yeah. at such a profound level, because it was all true. That's the problem with violence, you know. That's that's the worm of violence getting into a society. It it can be lethal, and and it takes people of great discipline and 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 to to, to be able to manage that and to mm -hmm. know when when it when it's enough and when it, when, and I mean also to be to be risking yourself, as Pierce and these guys were. I mean mm -hmm. that's that was part of the whole thing. They they were staking their own lives and they did and they lost them. So it's a heavy thing, you know, to consider. And it's a very interesting question. Could it ever happen again? You know, could it happen in our, our time? Mm -hmm. and maybe you, people will say that after, that it can't happen now because, that, because precisely because they've killed those passions in mm -hmm. the spirit of man. I don't agree with that. I, I, I think that actually the opposite can happen. Thing, life goes in cycles. Pierce always said this, you know, there's mm -hmm. nothing new. It just keeps the same thing. Mm -hmm. it, what, was, what was 
axiomatic, which is commonplace knowledge, mm -hmm. and then forgotten becomes, yes. you know, known again. And I think that in the world generally, you know, we have uh, uh, since World War Two been on a journey of kind of softening everything. Mm -hmm. uh, Rusty Reno, who's the editor of First Things, is a friend of mine, he's written a book called Return of the Strong Gods, and he talks about disenchantment, that there was a disenchantment process that went through culture, Western culture in the post-war period, mm -hmm. in order precisely to destroy all those strong passions. Mm -hmm. He calls those the strong gods. You know, the patriotism, you know, uh, you know, uh, idealism, all of mm -hmm. these things that drive people to great things, you know. And they were all saw, and so then you can see that now, in in, in particularly in men, you mm. know, around sure. the place, you know, they're softened, they're they're, yeah. they're girlish, you know, and being mocked constantly in in popular drama yeah. and yeah. Adver advertisements. And That's right. Everything. Well, that, that was all. It seems yeah. to be part of that. The whole yeah. kind of attack, the feminist attack on men, in in uh, seems to be a part of that, uh, and and in Ireland, uh, that's. That's true. I mean, you know, I know lots of young men now. I mean, it's very hard to talk to them because they don't know what you're talking about. And you, yeah. they, f they get embarrassed if you start talking about anything sure? of substance. They run away or they try to turn the conversation into some kind of parody or pastiche or, or, or yeah. as they call it, the bant, you know. Mm. And but that, that can't last, you see. Yeah. Because that will create its own chaos. And, yes. and, and, and the reaction to that then will be of the traditional yeah. kind, unfortunately. That's yeah. inevitable. Because if we don't actually, uh, yeah. you know, you know, pull ourselves together, yeah. somebody else will do it in yeah. our midst, and we'll be forced to actually yeah. either do it or die. Yes, dealing as I am now with with uh, the small numbers of young Catholics that are now there, yeah. and the numbers are small, I assure you. Um, well, that won't come as a surprise to you. A few thousand in the whole country, I'd say, by which I mean intentionally. Yes, Catholics, because as you put it. It's rather harder to get away from than some people think. <laughs> but I mean those who are intentionally, uh, very many of them have rediscovered their faith. A lot of them have paid a high price for their faith, personally. Yes. They've, they've come a journey yes. and, and rediscovered it. As Eliot says, you know, the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Yes. And, yeah. and a that's lot a, of them are there. That's a familiar feeling. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of them, interesting, you talked about the Latin Mass, a lot of them are going back to it because, of course, Benedict allowed that. Yes. He, he made it e accessible yeah. and, and easy. A problem I'm having is that now I find uh, I, I would have been regarded as a, as a, how would you put it, a conservative by my contemporaries. And now this young crowd don't know what to make of me because I keep going on about Irish Catholicism and they're suspicious of it they see Ireland as having chucked the whole thing in. They don't trust Ireland, even though they're Irish. The Northerners particularly, because their families were so scarred originally, even though they're too young to remember it. But here your point about memories being longer than a life, mm. uh, about the troubles. And they don't want to hear about the Irish part of Catholicism. It's a very interesting development. People like me are fighting hard against that. Mm. I think it's a disastrous development. Maybe I'm wrong, I don't know. I think an Irishman is Catholic in an Irish way. Yes. I, I don't know, it's, uh, Billy Connolly said when he went became a Buddhist, I think it was religion without whiskey. I can't imagine religion without whiskey, <laughs> unless you're a pioneer, in which case whiskey is still somehow defining. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, religion without rain. Religion yeah. without the Irish landscape. 
yes. religion without Irish without without Irish voices. Is there any point to my trying to take a stand on this? Is there any point? Should I just be dealing with it? You know, just saying, okay, fine, we'll be Catholics. Um, I don't know, whatever. You know, just just Catholics, deracinated Catholics. I I think that if it works at all, the 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 that part will grow back. I think that at the moment there is an understandable reaction because they want to, you know, in so many ways um, that the indigenous institutional model of Catholicism has been disappointing and has been uh, frustrating and, and uh, you know, indeed, and I would say that they might have certain views about the, the global picture as well at the moment, but, uh, you know, I think that the figure of Ratzinger in the, in the global sense has remained a hugely inspirational figure, yeah. and and will continue while he's in it, to, and even afterwards. Uh, there isn't, you know, it's it, it, the, the, that Catholic Irish thing is intangible. Undoubtedly, it's there. Undoubtedly, it's it's part of it. I mean, there is a there is a kind of a school of thought that, that you know that Catholicism was never really belonged in Ireland. You know, I mean, I know that uh, uh, friends of mine who are sort of old-fashioned pagans, for example. Uh, have this view that it's uh, an imported, you know, Middle Eastern mm. uh, uh, rabbinical uh, Jewish. It's it's a, it's a, it's a Abrahamic uh, sure, religion yeah. and so on, and that it never really fitted here. I don't agree with that. I I I, I think it it was intrinsically part. Certainly, I mean, how long does something need to be part of a culture before it becomes inextricably part of it? I don't. And the conversion seems to have been strangely um, smooth. Mm. There's no martyrology to speak of from the conversion. You know, there's no uh, great spilling of blood, no, no, no. martyrs. It's, it's curious yes, uh, it in is, that yeah. it does seem to have taken root quite easily. It does. I, I, I do think it, uh, you know, it, it, suits, it, it did suit the personality of the Irish, you know, uh, very many parts of it. Uh, I think that the young people are um, they're reacting. You see, if you're a Catholic now and you're holding on to it, you're very much beleaguered in this culture. You know, you're, you're, you're despised. You're looking as a simpleton. Where, in fact, you're, act you're connected to the most profound understandings of reality that have been ever coined in, in this dimension. But they don't, that's not seen, you know, because, you know, as I said, if I, myself and you were to go on television on RTE tonight and, and I wanted to play the smart aleck and... Uh, Marianne McCallan said to you, Father, he said, uh, said what well, just a simple question, Father, do you, do you believe in God? And you say, yeah, I do, yeah. And I was then the, 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 the kind of uh, central casting atheist, say. And she goes, John, John Walters, what do you do? I says, ah, I, mean, I just say, ah, no, I don't. You know, now, immediately, without uttering a word, you know, only say, I know, or something like that, just laugh. I'm a thousand times smarter than you are in this culture. I, I don't have to say anything more. I just have to sneer at everything you say. And just <laughs> <laughs> I saw someone there, somebody sent me a clip recently of some young gay fella and he was doing all this thing and it was terrible. I mean, most Catholics would regard it as deeply sacrilegious with a cross and doing the Our Father in a kind of a mimicky kind of voice. I wasn't offended by it. I just thought, Poor yeah. he has no clue. Yeah. He has no clue. Yeah. Like, he's, he's to be pitied. But that's kind of the com that's the culture, and I know. I mean, I have relatives who are like that, and you know, and they're not all young, you know. They're, they're, no. they're, this has kind of worked its way up. Oh no, indeed, yeah, yeah, and you I get mean, a fairer hearing from the young, nearly. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mm. actually would be very concerned. I mean, uh, like 
Father, that, uh, you know, we're now leaving people totally bereft at the end of their lives. Yeah. Because they, they're not sure about anything. Yeah. There's no solid basis for their belief in the culture. And there yeah. needs to be, you see. Because going back to what we're talking about, you know, the effect of news and all that, if, if something isn't constantly being acknowledged, <laughs> then it becomes suspect. Yeah. If, if you say, well, because you kind of say, God, I didn't hear anyone saying that for a while. Yeah. I wonder, is it not true anymore? You know, yeah. like, like, and I mean, I remember writing about this in the book called Black, uh, um, Beyond Consolation, which I was talking about an interview with Nulo Fuelon, one of my former colleagues in the Irish Times, when she, she was diagnosed with terminal con cancer. Yeah. And she did this interview on, with Marion Finucane on the radio. Famous interview. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and, and then there was a subsequent one with Seamus Heaney, where he was asked questions about his belief, and he said, more or less, nah, no. And, and, and it wasn't gone into. Yeah. And, and my point is, like, what concerned me was that if you leave things like that hanging, yeah. that has a terrible effect. And the result is that people that you think now would be not necessarily gospel greedy or daily mass scores or anything, but fairly solid in their faith, as it were. Hmm. They're not at all. And they're elderly people. And they're terrified. And they're taking antidepressants in order to keep themselves half sane. Yes. And they're ending up in those terrible homes and they're drugged up to their mm -hmm. hairline. And this is a shocking situation. Yeah. And I don't see anything happening from the, from the hierarchy, from the church, about this. They don't seem to be aware of it as a problem. We have a deep, profound spiritual crisis in Ireland and it has all kinds of symptoms. And that's one of the most, the ugliest and the most heartbreaking. Because it's not that they've lost their faith, it's that they don't, they haven't been given the tools they need to deal with the culture that's attacking their faith. Do you remember that play, uh, Philadelphia, Here I Come? Yeah. Do you remember where Gar says to the canon, it's Gar private, isn't it? It's the, mm. the, de the yeah. demon, if you like, the spirit, who's saying to the canon, don't you have anything to say, canon? Isn't it your job to translate? Yeah. And he definitely said that. Yeah. Isn't it your job to translate? Yes. And it's a searing indictment of us. It is. Every time I hear it, I flinch, because yeah. I, I, I feel he, he's Bang on. Yeah. You see, it's not obvious. Yeah. God is not obvious if you take the bunker for granted. God only becomes obvious when you allow yourself into, you, 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 you have to be able to access on a moment to no moment basis, the quality of wonder. That's the only way that you can know anything. The way I kind of would put it is that reality is, you see, you, you can actually try to get into the question of proving the validity of God or all this stuff. And that's kind of spurious. The question to begin with is, well, look where we are. Father Giussani does a thing uh, in, in one of his books. That's the most amazing thing. Can, can you just tell people who he is? Uh, yeah, he, Father Giussani, Again, is, yeah. he was the founder of Communion Liberation. And he's, he, he has a number of books which are really quite difficult reading, but brilliant. Mm -hmm. Because they, uh, it's hard to say what he does. It's not that he rewrites Christianity or anything like that. He, he, he doesn't in the slightest. But what he does is he places it in the context of the present moment. He, yeah. he, he speaks about the contemporaneity of Christ. Yeah. And then he actually shows you how that, what that requires yeah. for you to see. But he talks about this, and this is almost like what we were talking about Benedict's, uh, Pope Benedict's bunker and the idea of man having built this kind of place that he then convinced himself is the world. And that in order, what's the antidote to that then? Well, the antidote is obviously you have to find a way to look out of the mm -hmm. bunker. He talked about opening the windows, Benedict did, opening the windows and looking out mm -hmm. at the mystery. 
so that you find that moment of resonance with your own heart and mm -hmm. what you see beyond the bunker. But Jusani actually gave a very, very functional method for actually doing that. And that to me is the, the key to understanding the, this whole question. He said, imagine yourself being born. Imagine that at this moment, right here where we are, we are I am coming out of my mother's womb. He says, imagine it. Now, he says, what do I see? And what, do I, what is my response? So I come out here. And I see movement, color, being. Yeah. Yeah. What is my response? Absolute astonishment. And then the second response, he says, I didn't do this. I didn't make myself. Yeah. That's the moment that we need to enter into in order to experience the yeah. wonder that we need to believe in God. Yeah. Because if we see, if we look around normatively, we're seeing only the bunker. Mm -hmm. But if we see it as we would have seen it for the first time, we feel that astonishment and we realize that actually we are in the midst of something unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable, even if we never knew what the word unbelievable meant. Mm -hmm. People say to me sometimes, you know, uh, well, come on, you know, you're an intelligent man, you know, these like fellow journalists or the likes. You know, you, you can't really seriously mean to say, do you think the Son of God came down to earth and, you know, lived here for 33 years and mm -hmm. died on the cross and then rose again? I said, come on, give me, like, come on. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I, I know what you mean, and I do know what they mean. Mm. But I said, you know, that to me isn't nearly as astonishing as the fact that I'm here myself now yeah. at this moment. Yeah. That to me is mind-blowing. Yes. If I wasn't, mm -hmm. would, and if I had a mind that didn't exist, mm -hmm. but that was somewhere to be, to think, mm -hmm. would I be in the slightest bit astonished by what I've done before, that the yeah. creator of the universe, I say, so? This is the astonishing thing. Yeah. That we're here at all. Yeah. That I'm here looking at you, and you're, we're engaging in, mm -hmm. in trying to understand each other and to talk to each other. And yeah. Like, we've, we've missed the whole game. This whole world that we've, the bunker, it causes us to miss the whole game. Mm -hmm. That's that's what people need to be told. You know, these older people, like they need to go back to the basics, yeah, and to be helped to actually solidify their feet on the ground so that they can actually stand before reality and stand before death, yeah, without fear. Yeah, it's not easy. I, I I'm not, and again, uh, Brendan, I'm not saying this, you know, in some glib kind of you know high moral groundery kind of way. I, I had an experience a couple of years ago where I actually believed I was going to I was going to die, and I went through a terrible fear for a very short period. Now, mainly now to some extent it was to do with the condition, which was a kind of a uh, it was a viral thing that I had, mm -hmm. and it attacked my nervous system. Yeah. So it probably turned me to jelly in a certain almost literal sense, but nevertheless I felt terror. And that when I identified the terror, I wrote an article in the first thing. It was the terror of goodbye. The terror of losing all the love that I had in this world, mm -hmm. all the people that I loved and loved yeah. me. I couldn't bear the thought of that. That was the only thing. It wasn't fear of the afterlife yeah. or fear of judgment or fear of anything. It was the fear of actually having to say goodbye to people. Yes. And people are, are flinching away from that, and I understand that. Mm -hmm. uh, but we do need to help them and help ourselves in so doing to find feet, their feet again in this absolute bog of a culture yeah. 
um, because otherwise we will all die roaring. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> that may stay with me. That's good. Yeah, that's good. We've talked about 1916. We've talked about idealism. We've talked about all of these these impossible things, uh, as Pierce said, um, deeming them alone worth the toil. You know, mm. to, he dedicated his life to the impossible. Yeah, it is, yeah. And and we're talking talking about faith. Benedict, whom you clearly admire. He's very absorbed, as you know, in this whole thing of beauty mm. and that beauty will lead us to God. Yes. And that indeed, without beauty in our worship, in our lives, in our, that it becomes, hard, it becomes hard to reach God. It becomes hard for us to visualize yes. God. Music. Yes. Do you see a special potential in music? Because I know you've written about it and I know it's a big part of your life. I used to teach, and uh, second level, what I was constantly struck by was the part that music played in the lives of the boys I taught. Many of them were not musicians, they didn't play, but they were engrossed in music. It was a language they spoke confidently. Can you say anything to that? Is there a way forward for us in music? Oh, I think there has to be. The music is, is, is vital. It's, it's as vital as, as food and drink, I think, uh, because it is a language of the other, yeah. the language of, of the unknowable. And it's a language that comes from within us that is, you know, is not, uh, you know, uh, like conventional languages, but it's, it's, it goes deeper. I'm not educated in classical music or whatever. I mean, I'm... I'm uh, but I have certain experiences and I, I, I'm not a musician but I have written songs and uh, I play very badly a number of instruments uh, purely for my own <laughs> annoyance but I think it's vital just to, to take it into Benedict immediately because I, I do think he, he had a, an extraordinary understanding of yeah. all this I remember uh, to about two years ago after I had been very ill for about six months I would have this viral thing and that had really kind of paralyzed my, paralyzed my face and left me deaf in my left ear. Wow, okay. So I couldn't listen to music anymore and, and very much, and I still can't because it, 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 there's a condition in my ear called hyperacusis that it amplifies the vibration but not the noise, not the sound. So that's a, it's a very distressing kind of thing. Uh, but I, I, I was, we were in Oxford, myself and my wife, I was at a conference uh, and, and uh, uh, we went to a Latin mass there in the in the in one of the churches, I think it's there all the time, and and uh, I hadn't been at one for a long time, and you know it, the music started, and and uh, like I could feel something rising in me, you know, and then the procession started, you know, I used to sing these uh, hymns, these pieces when I was a child, you know, Dies Irae and and uh, Agnus Dei and Sanctus and all this, and there was we did the laugh, so. Then the procession came down and there was like, you know, about a dozen priests and three dozen altar boys and, and they're coming in, the, the priest in the front like, and he was doing the holy water and he was lashing it out like, and, you know, and as it came to me, I was there, I was, the music was, and, and the holy water caught me full on the face, just on the paralyzed part of my face, and I burst into tears. And I, I, I literally, I sobbed uncontrollably for about five minutes. Wow. 
And I was thinking about it. I, didn't, I couldn't articulate to you even now what that was like. But I think it had something to do with the idea of being home. Yeah. You know, after all the journey, or much of the journey, that this is home. This is where I began. And this is, this is real. This is concrete. This is true. And music has always had that kind of effect on me. It, it, it really moves me profoundly. And not just, you know, the soaring kind of uh, uh, classical things, which you can do that. I mean, and even though, as I say, I'm not educated in that area. Rock and roll was my foundation yeah. of music, and also Irish traditional music. I love Irish traditional yeah. music, and that has the same power in different ways to do really? it. Really? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there are no musics that I've ever heard that it, you know, can match you know, the Danon, the old mm -hmm. Danon in full flight. Like, yeah. it's, it's just beyond belief. Yeah. yeah because it, the sense of the personality, Yes. Like with the humour, the sense of the, that erupts in that music yeah. is just such, uh, you know, that's again, uh, you know, I didn't mention that when we were talking uh, about the, the, the personality of Ireland, but you, mean, you, call, you can't talk about the personality of Ireland mm. without the music, because that yeah. is, you know, the true note. The Shannos and the girl, the, yeah, the, yeah. the, the uh, endless verses. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Uh, yeah. uh, I remember Vincent Brown once doing a speech about uh, that, that, that event, and he was calling for a... Uh, 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 set aside for Shanwell singers, you know, mm. that they'd be paid not to sing, but that was a joke. <laughs> 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 but, uh, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's utterly tremendous music. But, you see, Ratzinger, it's very interesting. About 10 years ago, I, did a, I, I curated a, an exhibition in Remini in Italy, in, as part of the meeting of Remini, which is a massive thing, organised by yeah. Communion Liberation, and they asked me to do this about rock and roll, and it was called Rock and Roll as a Quest for the Infinite which I think is a very serious... Yes. But I was using at it I, as my kind of sparring partner was yes. the figure of Ratzinger, because he had actually spoken about rock and roll in, in quite critical oh. terms. Yeah. And, and about the kind of... that it takes us down into the base mm -hmm. instincts and it is about the ego, that it removes us from the possibility of the beauty. Like, the thing about his thing about beauty is really so absolutely essential for us to understand that the beauty as a sign of, some, of order that is unknowable, yeah. that we must see this clue and follow it. This is the thing, you know, that when we feel that, we must trust that feeling. Of the mystery is singing yes. to us. Yes, and yeah. the joy that we feel, in, 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 unaccountable joy that we yeah. feel in, the, in hearing a piece of music, or have, yeah. you know, that it just carries us away out of ourselves. And, yeah. And, and so he, he has, you know, a profound understanding. But I, I, my, my case was really with the exhibition then was to say to, to, to Ratzinger, there's more to this as well that, that you haven't seen. And, and I wanted to try and explain it because that is really uh, so true, you know. There are some extraordinary artists, like I think David Bowie was an amazing artist. And, and he's, you know, a song like Heroes. What it can actually sum up about the human spirit, like it's so paradoxical and yet ironic and yet real and true, you know, and and like Lou Reed does a version of John Lennon's song "Jealous Guy," which you just put the hair standing on your head. Like I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's terrifying because he actually is that character. Whoa, he is the character, and he is, he is every move, every twitch. Yeah. Is there, you know? It's, yeah. it's unearthly, you know. So the thesis of this this exhibition was that rock and roll in modern society yes. was a kind of a paradoxical instrument, a kind of a Trojan horse for the consciousness of greater things, and it was one of the few ways left by which these things could enter the city. 
uh, without being stopped at the gates and turned wow. back. You know? Okay. That, and that the, the musician, whether it, the, somebody I say like Lennon or Bowie or, 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 or Lou Reed or whatever, that there's a strange process like that. Yeah. You know, they might have a guitar in the hotel bedroom and they take it out after concert or first thing in the morning or in the afternoon and they start to write a song out of something and, and the, the feeling is real there and they translate that into words and music and then that song is processed it's recorded in a studio and it's fed through like multi a multiplicity of wires not just literary wires but all kinds of figurative wires of, of public relations and, and, and uh, advertising and, and uh, hype and narcissism and you name it you know and then this artist goes on the stage to sing and he's he's actually posing he's he's he's, he's behind something that is misleading because he's just a narcissist this egomaniac but the song is him in the room expressing the, the innermost feeling and it's still there and that translates through all the wires to the teenager in their hotel bedroom receiving this and a bit like the idea of the the, the humor that it communicates in Irish culture in the Irish personality the spark is, is, is created, is generated, and that feeling is generated in their heart as well. Yeah. And I, I think that, that, that some of the great artists, if you look at them, that's what they've been doing, you know, they, they, they don't call it that. You know, I, I, mean, I remember talking to Bono of you too, I think they've got a bit off the rails, but they did understand this, Bono did understand this, does understand it, you know, that uh, uh, you can't really talk about this too much because it's not supposed to be talked about. But ultimately, the, the music, it's, it's a powerful thing, that music. And that's actually the hardest case to make, in a way, rock and roll. It's the hardest case to make in this, because it's supposed to be the devil's music. That's an ironic appellation. Like, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not at all. It's, it's, it's about the spirit of man, also. I mean, there are a lot of stupid things as well, obviously, but it has that potential, and still has, and could actually renew itself, although it's in a kind of a plateau period now. So that is always, I mean, it, 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 that music moved me in the beginning, you know, that, that it suggested that things were possible. I mean, it seduced me into the wrong idea of freedom as well. But it also educated me to come back, because when you listen to some of these guys, they go through those journeys sure. pretty quickly, and they yeah. can tell you, you know, how it doesn't work. And, and, and that was true of Bowie. If you look at the figure of Bowie, think about him, like, he was a wreck to begin with, like, an absolute maniac. And then he became this like adult, this extraordinary responsible adult who would just the most the most shimmering performances I've seen like of anybody. There's an amazing performance which is online of himself and Lou Reed singing Waiting for the Man, which is a song about waiting for a drug pusher. But it's like a novel in a song, like. And you wanna oh it's just mind blowing. Like the way they can reenact the story and they, they, without any pretense or, or affectation or anything, just, and the irony and the fun between them, and the knowingness and the language, it's just amazing. And, and, I, you know, and then, if you go back to 1992, there's an amazing moment if people want to look at it, when at the concert for, for Freddie Mac Mercury in Wembley Stadium. And this clip is taken out of all the film, but it's there on YouTube if people want to look, put it in, David Boy, Our Father. He does his set and he gets on his knees and he says to our father on stage in front of 
120, 130,000 people live to the world. Crikey. Even nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about it. I bet they don't. <laughs> it's the most amazing moment. And, and you can see it. You can see it in, in his demeanour that he's... I described it in an article about f in for first things. Like I just described it like almost like in slow motion, you know, what he's doing. You can see his process. Because at one point, somebody starts at kind of a taunt. There's a jeer from the crowd. And you think, that if that was me, I would go louder. Yeah. He goes softer. Yeah. Because he's so, like, and, he, and it stops. He stops it right there. He just goes softer. Yeah. Hallowed be thy name. Yeah. Go, and you can see it as he's getting to the end. He says, I can't, I, I'm getting away with it. I'm getting it away with it. I'm doing it. Yeah. I'm here. I'm showing my, my true heart to the world. And I'm actually succeeding. Is that a poor Rick Pierce moment? It is. It is, yeah. Well, it is. The <laughs> and he's equally uncomfortable. In that idiom, it is. It is <laughs> yeah, this, in that, in that idiom, yeah. It, it is a similar yeah. thing. And uh, this is the amazing hidden part of rock and roll, by the way, because the, 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 the packaging is all ideology. Yeah. But the, the heart is not. You can't write songs of that quality and not not be real. So are you basically saying that they, that they and, and I know how infuriating it is, by the way, when, when an interviewer says, so you're saying, mm. you're really saying. So what but, you're saying is. But yeah. is the artist a beautiful trapped animal being shown by curmudgeonly um, zookeepers who don't understand him or unworthy of him, uh, but who have him in their clutches? That can be part of it, but it's a necessary part as well, actually, yeah. paradoxically, because, uh, y y you know, the artist can't do what, it, what is necessary. He's not a businessman. No, uh, or to yeah. communicate, because yeah. 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 you need all those processes. Yeah. And so, but you need to fight. And I mean, the rock and roll is studded with, with kind of experiences of that collision, like Lennon and the Beatles, yeah. you know, and, and that whole moment and just walking away from it all. And, and uh, Peter Green, like, giving all his money to charity and just... Mm you know, walking into Oxfam and saying how much will it take to fix Biafra or whatever it was and just writing the cheque and walking out. You know, like these were pure hearts and they're still there, you know, it's just that it, that, that it can become, you know, the, 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 the packaging comes to be seen as the thing. Now you're talking there again about authenticity. We had talked about that earlier with regard to the humility, which is really realism before God, before the mystery all of that. I gather you have reservations about Christian rock or Christian... Oh, I do, yeah, <laughs> I do. I think it's, a con it's almost like the ultimate oxymoron in a strange kind of way, because yes. it just doesn't work. I, I, yeah. and I think it's because it makes everything too explicit, you know? I mean, that's the thing that I, I, I feel even... I, I, I don't like talking about religion or faith or those things yeah. for that reason, because they short circuit into... Yeah into a misunderstanding. Don't communion and liberation prefer to just refer to the mystery? The mystery, yeah. Rather than going on about God. Well, they do, but they, they, they do the talk about loaded. Christ. They do talk yeah. about Christ. Sure, but, yeah. But, but yeah, they talk about the mystery because I, I think that they uh, uh, understand that problem. But they cannot, uh, yeah, within that as well, you can get the same syndrome where the possibilities are killed by a kind of a simplistic, sentimental or superficial statement okay. of something that is not yeah. proven in the sense yes. that we're, we're talking about, we're trying to get to something. I know. And you can kill it by reaching the answer without the question. And you end up with just sentiment. Yes. Yeah. 
and and that's that's yeah. something that I I am wary of. You see, is it, it, but to be honest with you, like it, when in, in this culture, it doesn't really matter whether you succeed or fail in expressing it because you get hammered anyway, and you'll get they'll start hammering you from the minute you open your mouth. So it doesn't matter how well you say something. And I think the artist, in, this is very visible in rock and roll. The artist's job is to articulate the first cry of man. At that moment that Jasani described, imagine you have just been born. Because then the cry mm -hmm. is of cry of, of exhilaration and mm -hmm. fear and, and anticipation mm -hmm. and wonder. And that's something that in the bunker, maybe in a, in a perfect world, we could all do that all the time. Maybe that's their aspiration as a species, is to be able to speak that. But if you're in the bunker, you say yeah. the things the bunker gives you generally. Yeah. And the artist goes against that. Yeah. And that's why you can recognise the talent, the genius, immediately. You can distinguish the genius. So there's a prophetic quality to the artist. Oh yeah, very, very uh, sure. And involved in that then the, the possibility of, of Golgotha, of, of the crucifixion. That's right. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's almost, yeah. it's almost a given. Yeah. It's almost a given. I mean, like, yeah, because I mean, like any artist, I mean, Dylan will be, he's uh, is, is 80 now. Yeah. And, uh, but he's done well to get there. He's done it, well to it's get there. It's a hard, it's, and he's, the life he's, is hard on them. And he's, yeah. a, he's a, a, a converted Christian. Yes. I mean, you know, he, he, so he takes all this very seriously. I mean, he, he says, he has said that he roots everything he writes in the Bible. Yeah. And that's, nothing could be further from that to the kind of, let's say, the hot press view yeah. of rock and roll, yeah. which despises all that. Yeah. But these guys, these are the real deal. Yeah. Bowie and Dylan, John Lennon, who spent all his life trying to find the meaning of God. They live it. They live it, yeah. I mean, that's beautiful. statement he made in the first line of God, that song. God is a concept by which we measure our pain. Yeah. It's a beautiful understanding of, of, of uh, you know, it doesn't rule out anything. Yeah. That's, you see, the thing is, there's a tendency in our culture to reduce, once you start to, to trade only in words, you reduce things out of existence. I'll yeah. give you an example. I mean, Stephen Hawking uh, at one point wrote quite openly about the question of God, the possibility of God. And then he did this book where he kind of re rejected the same idea. And I remember all the headlines in the papers were the same uh, everywhere in the world. It was, uh, Hawking says, uh, God was not necessary for the creation of the world. And everybody says, there you are now. He's a brilliant scientist yeah. and you're only an idiot. That's there the, we are. right? Yeah. Now, just take that, that would just stop like and look at that sentence. What does it mean? God was not necessary for the creation of the world. God, who is God? So God is some figure who was not responsible for the creation of, right. So God exists, but he wasn't responsible for the creation of the world. So mm -hmm. God exists, wasn't responsible for the creation of the world, but the world was created. By whom? Not mm -hmm. by God. Okay, fine. So somebody else created the world. Tell you what, maybe we could call that person that created the world God. Maybe his name. Maybe <laughs> and, he's not, maybe and we can he, all go home. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so what I'm saying, the point is it's a meaningless statement. Yes, yes. And this is what words does to you. Yes. Words can't, you can't, you know, it's, it's like Murphy yeah. says, you know, words are yeah. not the meaning. Yeah. It's the meaning is the subtext, yeah. uh, you know. You know, yeah, but what's mm -hmm. your name like, you know? Yeah. Like that, that's what it comes down to. And, and so, so many of these questions, you know, these artists, like they, they, 
searched and searched and searched. It's a real symptom of an artist. I don't believe that it's possible to be an artist and to close down questions in the way that, that our culture insists now. And, and the opposite is happening in our culture because actually to be an artist in our culture now, it seems you have to be a secular atheist yeah. to be accepted. It's almost unthinkable. You don't, like, tell me the name of a poet, uh, a musician, artist who is known to be a believer. Yes. Or even a, an explorer. Yeah. It's almost unheard of. And, and that's, that's, again, that's bunker stuff, you see. Yeah. That's, they're products of the bunker. They're artists of the bunker. Yeah. But art is not of the okay, bunker. Okay, like Stalin's tame artists, the socialist realist artists who Very similar. churn them out. Much closer than they would yeah. like to, to admit. That's interesting. Yeah. So that's uh, and uh, so, like, we're in, bad, we're in a bad way for, for real, genuine, true explorations. And... Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's, what we have is a kind of an anti-art, you know, it's a reaction against stuff that yes. came before, or a replication, yes. or a parody, or a yes. pastiche. But it's not the real thing. Yes. So music is, is, I think, one of the codes by which we can transcend in our own terms, uh, our own self-created context and edifices and, and uh, thought processes. And it's really important, I think, for people that they, they continue to access it, but that they, 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 they not necessarily become educated, but yeah. to follow the, 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 the line of thinking of these artists and the line of feeling, uh, because they bring us to places that we wouldn't... We yeah. might be there, but we, they give us some yeah. concrete realisation yeah. that it is real. I think that's part of what Benedict was talking about, that beauty is a sign of that order. Yeah. And that happens in music, like because the world is such an extraordinary place that you know you would want to be perverse yeah. to want to explain it away yeah. by just saying it's a random you know collision of of, of atoms. Does through, anyone through really time. believe that? I don't think they can, yeah. you know. And I mean, that beauty is the answer to that. Yeah. Uh, and and beauty is an order, but it is the opposite of order in another sense because order it more and more is what man imposes on the world, and and that's very much uh, not beautiful, and and uh, it is denying the reality of the human journey and the human mm -hmm. spirit and the human heart, um, and I I think that uh, uh, these things have to be rediscovered in culture, if there's to be a future. Yeah. We don't have a future without that journey yeah. being made in public. A lot of the, you see, a lot of the whole purpose of uh, leaders and of any kind, I think, whether they be political or cultural or, or, or spiritual, is their whole purpose should be to dramatize these questions and, and, and make them visible to people so that people can recognize the question that's in their own heart and, and see it played out. That brings me to my second last question because we've talked about the price that the political idealist pays. He dies, mm. in one way or another. Yes. He suffers. The artist suffers. Now you're talking about the religious leader as, as, if you like, the teller of the story. But you have made the mistake of telling Ireland, a notoriously ungrateful country, <laughs> of telling Ireland its own story for years, mm. right? And, and you have paid a price. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to flatter you here. This is, I'm sure your opponents would acknowledge that. Yes. You know, your critics would acknowledge that. I know this isn't a fair question, but who's John Waters now at this stage in your journey? 
<laughs> it, it, it's a, it's, that's, I don't really, uh, don't know if I, if I have the, the capacity to answer it. Uh, I, I think as, with regard to your thing about the price and all that, yeah, I mean, but I, I've come to terms with that on the basis that, you know, if you speak the truth, and I don't mean that in any grandiose way, I just speak, no, sure. I just speak what I know. What I see, what I feel, what I what I intuit, mm. uh, and if you, that you know that might I might be wrong, but it's still the truth, because it's mm. it's the best I can come up with, and somebody can correct it in the future or whatever. But again, it's part of that bunker mystery thing. That on the one hand, I feel that there's a part of me that still wants to be accepted. You know, we're talking about all that. You know, the, yeah. the, you know, uh, there's a part of me that misses sure. t- the the kind of respect yeah. of the culture. And the Estona. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. But equally, I actually, at the same time, know that if I had that at this moment, given the way things are, I would be absolutely a fraud. So the price of doing what I have to do is to be as I am. And, and therefore, that is what I am now. And I'm actually happier than that, in that situation than I thought I ever could be. You know, I have, my life is, is happy now. I'm married, uh, I, I, we have a lovely family situation, uh, uh, an extended family. There's a lot of support, a lot of understanding, a lot of fellow feeling. I'm not lost in the way that I might have been not that long ago, you know, well, tw- 25 years ago. Oh, um, that's fantastic. You know, uh, or I, I don't know if yeah. I, I could survive now. Things have, uh, yeah. have accelerated and exacerbated to such an extent. I don't think I could survive now what I'm going through if I was living the life I was living then. Okay. As a, a kind of a solitary man, as yes. it were, you know. But, I mean, I, I'm quite heartbroken, really, about what's happening in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I look at little children, like, and, you know... Uh, we have a few children in our family and little ones, you know, and they're so f- their eyes are so full of hope and trusting. It breaks your heart that you cannot promise them anything yeah. anymore. You can't give them anything anymore, for sure. You can't bequeath them yeah. anything because it'll be corrupted, maybe, unless we can yeah. somehow offset or head off what's happening. So I'm, I'm concerned about all that. I'm distressed by that. Um, but I'm also sure, sure than I've ever been, that this is what I was put here for. You know, there's no other thing that I can do. I can't not do it. Anything I do, I do because I cannot not do it. I wish I could. Yeah. I t- try to talk myself out of it. Yeah. I try and duck and dive. Yeah. It always comes back and says no. That's happened to me numerous times in my life, Brendan. That I, yeah. I was about to change direction artistically or whatever. Yeah. I wanted to. I was writing plays for a while. I want to go in yeah. to do that. And I got the message. I, I did, so whatever this is, God, he gives me a kind of a nudge first, you see? Yeah. And if I don't take heed, he'd give it a yes. slap on the ear. Yes. Right? <laughs> you know? And then he headbutts me, you know? <laughs> Very <laughs> Irish. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 that's, that's, and, and that meant that I've always had to go back yeah. to, to the path. Yes. The path. The path. That I was on. Yeah. It's not the straight path. Yeah. But it's, it continuous. Is this one of the bad roads that you want to get, you want back? <laughs> well, actually, it is probably. I think there is a connection, all right, because you know the road yeah. is a, such a, a, an iconic uh, concept in human mythology. Yeah. You know that I, I think that that's yes. why. I mean, Jack yeah. Kerouac. You know, yeah. you yes, know. on the road. Yeah. yeah. That that's why. Yeah. That's not. It's not. You know, beast. Yeah. 
you know, it's beatified. Yeah. That's what it means. Yes. Be that's actually what he said. Yeah. That's where it comes from, the beat generation. Whoa. That's what it means. Didn't beatified. know that. Yeah. Yeah, this, this is what I think. You see, it's so disguised, you know? Yeah. Rock and roll is actually, because it comes from gospel music, you see, yeah. partially. Yeah. Couldn't be otherwise. Spirit, yeah. Negro spirituals, from the blues, the yeah. cry of the slave. Yes. You know, the Irish die, the starving Irish yeah. on the boats with the, 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 the folk songs which Bob Dylan plundered yeah. and turned into modern gems. You know, I mean, it, in the, with reverence, he pondered, yeah, yes. with great reverence, I say it. Yeah. But this is from the cry of the human yeah. heart at its most essential basis. Like it's, it's trying to find a sound that I think, as Paul Morley, the writer, the, the, writer the, Amer the British writer, said, that the, the singer, like someone like Van Morrison, is, he is, when he sings and tries to break the words apart, he is searching for the voice of God. That's what it is. That's what it is. All the other stuff is all just noise. Yeah. That's what it is. There is nothing else that draws people than that. It's not the glamour. These are all just, you know, this is misdirection. The hype, the, the, you know, it is this, this is this process of beatification. And the road is part of that, you know, and the, yeah. this is the journey that we're, yeah. that we're on. That's what it means. Yes. That it's freedom. Yeah. That's what Kerouac was saying, that it, you know, the freedom we seek is the road that we're on. Doesn't Pierce use the phrase, on road Sharon, mm. the road before me to the deed I shall do, to the death I shall die. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Last question. I know it's going to sound whimsical, but there is a point to it, okay? You're a newly minted Irish bishop. You've just been consecrated. The oils aren't even dry. Huh. First three decisions. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first thing I would do is establish some kind of uh, um, mission to re-evangelise Ireland in, in a particular way into the reason, the reasonable basis of the Christian faith and to show them that, actually, to show the people that what, what we've been saying, that, that uh, what blocks people from, from faith in God is not God. It's, it's all the stuff that we've built yeah. that blocks our vision of reality. I, I kind of often say, you know, that I, I was lucky in a way, uh, Brendan, to be born in a small town. Because outside in the street, and particularly when we were growing up, like, in a sense, there was a cafe up there, the Roma Cafe, and there was a jukebox. And, and there was, you know, it was like any, in a certain sense, it was like any city street. It's like the street out on Westport there. there it, yeah. And, and, and the thing about that, when you're on a city street, you're told where to go. There's arrows pointing, there's yeah. lines, you know, there's, you're directed this way, that way, left, right, you know, cross, don't cross, mm -hmm. whatever. When I went out my back door, I was basically in the wilderness because all the gardens were kind of run into one, a commonage, and there was a, a river that went through the river, a sump mm -hmm. went through the back of our, our, our houses. We live in both worlds and we have to learn the language of both. And it yes. goes back to what I said about Ivor Brown, it's not either or, it's both and. Yeah. So I would set up some kind of, a, I don't know, I don't like words commission, but I would actually try to recruit the most brilliant in the, in the sense, I, I mean the absolute mysterious sense yeah. of brilliance, yeah. to, to try and find ways to, to start disseminating this idea. And the second? Well, I, I, I would actually restore the, na the Latin mass to the centre, if I could. If I, I know some young Catholics who are going to beatify you on the spot for that. No, no, because that is the beauty. That is the beauty. That is the wonder. That is the mystery all there. 
That yeah. is the, the dramatization of the mystery, but yeah. it is also the mystery. Yeah. And, and uh, do you want another one? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just think that uh, the Catholic uh, Church needs to create a different uh, mentality, a different view of itself. That it's not, it's not just a, it's just, they're not, bishops are not just managers, they're not executives, like, they're actually custodians of the culture. And, and that they have a responsibility to, at the most fundamental level, to nourish our understanding of our own. But the office structure. is prophetic. Yeah. Yeah, it's a prophetic office. It is, yeah. It I, is. yeah. But it, it explains. I remember actually hearing that phrase, actually. This is how one of the moments that I kind of, when I was on my journey back, I heard an interview with Ratzinger, or it was a translation, he wasn't speaking in English, but. And all I can remember is a snatch of one sentence. And, and I remember I could see the commas in the sentence. There's only five words I remember the church, and I could see the comma, expert in humanity. Another comma, and I don't know what was after. That's that's what it is. Yes, that, well, that's not all it is. Obviously. No, no, but but, but yeah, it is that. Yeah, and and that's an extraordinary resource. Yeah, and never in our lives, ever our history, have we needed that resource yeah. so desperately as we need it now. Yeah. So I I have to I would say that we need that would be one of my most urgent tasks is to say to if I was Archbishop of Dublin or Armagh, I would say we really have to claim this role again. We have to lay claim to it. And, and I'll tell you something, Father, I believe that young people would respond to such a call. Yeah. They're crying out, most, many of them, mm. for some kind of, something that will unite all these things. It's not that I, what I, I'm saying is not, it is never my intention in saying these things to trendify or hippify mm. things. I, I, I don't have any time for that. Yeah. I, 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 I understand the pop culture, rock culture, very strong, very well. But I'm not necessarily part of it. I never fitted into it. Mm. Uh, I was never a ligger, you know. I just watch it, and I'm interested, and I'm curious. And I don't think that it's, it's all that different to being a priest or a bishop. You know what I mean? The, the, it sounds a horrendous thing to say. It no, sounds, no, no, no. But it's, no. they're very close. Yes. The searching for the truth. Yes. They're, they're the same thing. And I think that those barriers need to be broken down, not by becoming hyper and saying, that's, well, whatever you're having yourself, you mm. know. I'm not interested in that. That's, that's where it's going wrong now. Yeah. Because the anthropological dimensions of the church's teaching, as I said, are vital. Not because of grey-bearded men mm -hmm. handing down tablets of stone, but because all of these things are written in the structure of the species and of yeah. the individual human heart. And, and so, you know, that needs to be understood. But I think yeah. that, that that's the lesson of rock and roll, funnily enough, I mean, as well. I mean, at the end of the day, the people who survived they were the, the longest for people like Leonard Cohen and Dylan and, and these guys who understood these questions at a yeah. profound level. The ones who didn't died at 27. And that's why. Wow. Yeah. John Waters, I don't know about you, but I could sit here all evening. Me too. <laughs> to this. Uh, it's been a privilege and a pleasure, and it certainly has not been work. Not for me, anyway. Thank you. And uh, we are so grateful. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for so generously sharing your thoughts. And we look forward, perhaps, even to further conversations down the line. I'd Please love God. to do that. Thank you very much. Take care, John, and God bless. God bless.